a good moment to be doing a live stream because it's the end of the first day of three in Bahrain where they've been testing the new 2024 Grand Prix cars prior, of course, to the Bahrain Grand Prix next weekend, which is actually being held on a Saturday. Really pleased. Not the first time. I think we had Vegas, didn't we? And now another one on a Saturday. Great. Bring it on. I love Saturday Grand Prix. I've got a golf tournament here on Sunday anyway, so it fits in perfectly. Anyway, welcome to everybody to the live stream, wherever you are around the world, whatever time slot you're in. I'm in a slight state of panic because I've just spent the last 90 minutes, A, talking to Craig Scarborough, and then B, producing, editing and, and producing the video with pictures and everything else. Uh, and then, of course, um, getting it into the live stream here, getting it ready to go into the live stream. So that's taken the last 60 minutes. And then um, I was just doing a test before we went live. And it looked as if the whole thing was corrupted. And But I had to sort of reboot everything and finally got here. So a little bit late, one minute late, I think. Um, yeah, so the testing. I think one question which a lot of people have been asking, um, certainly behind the scenes with me, is a bit of the old guard, I suppose, is why there's only three days of testing and why only one car per team? It seems draconian in terms of a Formula One which wants to have a championship that's as close as possible and give everybody as much opportunity as they can to develop and test their cars to try and get a little bit closer to Red Bull. Why aren't they doing more testing? Why aren't they allowing two cars? Why aren't they doing all this? Well, the rea reality, of course, is that it's all about money and this very strict test regime that we now have reflects the state of the union really of formula one in terms of its economy because it goes back really to formula one getting a bit too fat and a bit too self-confident when money was pouring out of the sky going back to the days almost of tobacco advertising when the teams basically spent whatever they got they just spent it and there was no there was no talk at the time and i was around very much so at the time of we need to be thinking ahead and reducing costs rather than just spending more and more and more and inflating everything we've got. And that and they were inflating everything in terms of staff, in terms of testing, in terms of the amount of stuff they were producing in-house and, uh, and, and the cost of buying stuff from, from outside, from third-party suppliers, from how much they were paying themselves to the motorhome boom, to the travel all over the world without any logic to it. It just got worse and worse and worse. And there was a massive amount of money available and a massive amount of money was being spent. And as I say, there was no feeling of we need to be a bit careful here because these times aren't going to last forever. And of course, they didn't last forever. And what happened was that the tobacco advertising, as we know, got completely destroyed. Destroyed is the wrong word. Completely banned throughout the world. And Formula One had to look for new sources of revenue. And the problem was then that it had priced itself out of the general sports sponsorship market. Other sports had been invented. Other sports that had been around a long time, soccer, fo football, uh, cricket, uh, the, the IPL in India, they all reinvented themselves and they were all finding golf, they were all finding these niches that were commensurate with the amount of money that was out there to be spent on the sport. Whereas Formula One was just way out in an orbit of its own, ridiculous amount of money. If you want a title sponsor, sponsorship of a team, 50, 45, 50 million pounds, things like that, just for the title sponsorship. And that's why today we have so much emphasis on racing because that is the, still the only one sure source of revenue 
for the teams to go racing because they know that it's part of the deal with the TV companies and with the circuit promoters. They wouldn't be racing now unless there was money and profit there. So they've got the calendar stretched as long and as far as they can with triple headers and double headers and everything else that we all know about. And of course, testing has taken a complete and utter side roll to all of that because it's so expensive and it doesn't actually produce anything in terms of revenue. So that's why we are where we're at. If they had, if they'd been a bit more circumspect about the way the sport was being run and reducing costs rather than increasing them, and of course a massive increase came when we went to the regenerative engines from V10s and then V8s. They, the cost of the engine packages trebled overnight, and that set the scene for the Formula One economy that we have today and how critical it is to be racing as much as possible and therefore ergo not testing at all uh, apart from these three days in Bahrain. So yeah I mean to me and then there's the budget cap on top of all that as well. I've always expressed my opinion about the budget cap. I, I think it's a complete waste of time and I think the teams um, have got enough problems as it is just trying to get things to work financially and every team is going to spend still what they can get. And, we, and we've robbed ourselves of the opportunity of teams um, building new stuff mid-season to try to make the racing closer. And, and, and I really firmly believe that. And we've got teams now, Williams, I think, saying today, James Bell saying today, oh, well, we haven't done the new, we haven't got the new Mercedes gearbox and we've still got pull rod at the rear because we want to save money and not do it. I mean, this is Formula One. This isn't Formula, <laughs> Formula Ford. Anyway that's um that's where we're at so as i said um i've been spending the last frantic hour actually it was 90 minutes um with uh craig scarborough and then processing that video so i think uh, most of you probably know what happened in bahrain today on the first day of testing what a surprise max verstappen and red bull quickest not only quickest, but unbelievably quick compared with the opposition. You can't really relate it to last year. You can't relate it to anything other than they were super quick and the margin was, uh, let's have a look. Max Verstappen, 31-3. Got to say Red Bull uh, and Mercedes, the only two teams to run the same driver all day. Everybody else split it 50-50. So, I mean, you'd think there, well, that's because Max is the number one driver and give him all the mileage he needs put Perez in the car tomorrow probably um, and the same at Mercedes oh no Lewis is Lewis is equal number one isn't he uh, anyway Max 31-3 Lando Norris 32-4 good job did that in uh, he was out in the afternoon Oscar Piastri did a lot of the sort of testing with all the rakes and stuff on the car in the morning but the McLaren looking pretty good Carlos Sainz uh, 32-5 he was out in the afternoon as well Charles Leclerc similarly doing a lot of groundwork in the morning and then Carlos Sainz putting in some good miles in the afternoon 32-5 same time is Daniel Ricciardo in the new, and I see F1 are calling it the new RB, which is a bit confusing, isn't it? If you've got RBR, which is Red Bull Racing, and RB, which is the old Alpha Tauri, Visa, I don't know. Should we, I guess we're going to end up calling it RB, but Visa seems to be an easy word to call it, but maybe that Red Bull don't want that, um, call it by. Uh, so anyway, I've been saying, people have been saying, what do you think, Peter, about 
who you're looking forward to seeing in 2024, uh, the, the new battles and who's going to go up. I've said several times, I'm really interested to see how Daniel Ricciardo and Yuki Tsunoda go. And I think that car will be pretty good. And look at that, 32.5, same time as Ferrari. Doesn't mean anything at this stage, any day one of testing, of course. But Daniel Ricciardo, very quick in that car. And it looked great under lights as well. Back end of testing under lights there. Pierre Gasly, 32.8, about where Alpine normally are. But yeah, they haven't seemed to have lost any ground. Lance Stroll, 33-0. Fernando Alonso, 33-3. Don't, you know, Fernando was always quick. In fact, he was quickest out of the box early on today. Aston Martin, I'm sure, a little bit better than that. But at the moment, you know, they're not doing what Visa are doing. You could say that. Charles Leclerc, Fernando Alonso, then Oscar Piastri and the other McLaren, Gonya Zhou. George Russell, Mercedes. Yeah, I mean, Scarbs in the video you're about to see is saying he thinks Mercedes have really made up some ground and it looks as if there are no red flags and the car is looking pretty good but George Russell 34-1 uh, as I say he ran all day as well and it looked to be a pretty sort of stressful day to me the car was in and out and a lot of stuff going on and yeah I suppose we can say well they got a lot of mileage in and it went okay but don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, Scarb, I'll, I'll play the video now because it's important for you guys to see what Scarb says about it. And then we can talk about it afterwards. I know there were lots of questions as well. So we get on to those. So this is a conversation I had just an hour ago, 90 minutes ago with Craig Scarborough about, and I hope it's going to work now, not go to some weird thing, uh, Scarb's um, on Bahrain testing. So Scarb's day one of the Bahrain test. Reasonably interesting. Reasonably. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, for me, all the talk is about the Red Bull RB20, uh, but we have seen you know, the, the Williams FW46 properly for the first time and a chance to have a good close look at uh, all the other cars up and down the pit lane. But yes, yeah, I say that the key thing really is trying to decode, you know, what is going on with the RB20. And I think we've made some progress today, although there's still a few questions outstanding. Well, talk us through what's on your mind, read the RB20. So uh, if you remember when we did our video oh, only a few days ago uh, about the RB20, I said that I think there were two inlets. Everyone was talking about these vertical inlets on the car. And I didn't believe that was the whole cooling package. And I had a look at the CGI stuff that they had and lightened lots of their other images and found some inlets below what I was describing, the beak of the, uh, the front of the side pod. And today, yes, that was confirmed that there are inlets there. We also found some other inlets, which we weren't expecting, uh, which were some just um, around the halo, just behind the driver's head, and they were inlets. So it's like, okay, what's going, what's going on here? So I have a theory, and obviously this is day one of testing, so this is still very much a theory. I can't confirm everything. So let's start off those, what I'm calling the shark mouth inlets under the beak of the side pods, um, which gives me kind of what we describe as an overbite setup. And again, it looks just like a shark's mouth if you kind of look at it. There's an inlet there and that goes into the side pods quite conventionally to the radiators that are probably cooling the uh, combustion engine and bits and pieces like that. So that, that seems fairly straightforward. Then we've also got the roll hoop and the roll hoop has got the three pieces in it as usual. The middle one is for the air box for the turbo engine. And then the two outside ones are for probably hybrid or maybe gearbox hydraulic coolers, which are mounted just behind the, the roll hoop above the engine. Uh, again, all quite conventional. Then we come to these halo inlets, which we've never seen before. Red Bull have played with some inlets in that area before, but that's just a bit of aerodynamic work rather than anything else. Lots of conjecture. I think I've now found a picture that shows that they actually lead to yet more little coolers. 
So rather than having a big package of centerline coolers above the engine, which makes that engine cover really bulky, um, Adrian Newey and Red Bull appear to have done what Toro Rosso have done so many times in the past, is package lots of them just behind the roll hoop and the monocoque. So those halo inlets go in to a couple of small coolers and they're immediately ducted outwards to the louvers that are in the side of the engine cover. Uh, and that means that it looks like it's a two-part set of louvers that they have in the engine cover. The front pair are the ones which are for these uh, halo inlets. And I think we'll find that they're permanently open because it's, you know, just, it looks like it's the way that it's been designed. So, so that's most of it explained apart from those vertical inlets. Now we were describing them as S-duct inlets. Some people believe they were the main cooling side pod inlets. And while I believe the rest of what I've explained so far is probably quite accurate, this is where I'm starting to guess. Now I've had a few words from people and I've seen a few pictures. I think that actually within that side pod, you've got your usual radiators laying down in that sort of the main bulge of the side pods. I think there's another pair of coolers lying almost on the floor underneath them. And they are fed by that S-duct inlet, that vertical inlet. So there's no S-duct. It's not like Ferraris, it's something completely different. It is cooling. And I'm guessing that they've put the turbo intercoolers, which are the big air-to-air -air ones, on the floor of the car, ducted air um, either underneath or on top of them. And then they then exit the air out through the back of the Coke bottle area. And that just allows Red Bull to get the deep water slides that they want on the top of the sidepods, those big gullies, which weren't on the launch car. They were hidden on the launch car. It was slightly disguised, but I think we're now starting to see more of it. And there's one other little um, mystery on the car is it's got these big cannon outlets going across the back of the, uh, from the cockpit back to the back of the car. And there's a couple of detachable paddles on there uh, at the very end. And I can't quite work out what's going on there. So I think maybe we'll see even more secrets being <laughs> uh, shown by the Red Bull. But uh, again, the other thing with the Red Bull is that lots of people were talking that these were zero pods. They were a copy of Mercedes, that at some point they're going to go very much to what Mercedes have run for the past two years. I think that's complete fake. I don't think there's any facts behind that. The, the, the hardware and the structure we see there wouldn't make a zero pod in any shape or form. So I think we're actually looking at what is in some respects quite a conventional side pod, but with some weird details and some weird ways about going things. And it makes it quite unique. And uh, certainly from the pace today, but, yeah, uh, it, it's working for them. So is it fair to say that Adrian's approach then was, I want to maximise the effect of the gullies. And to do that, I'm going to really focus on the packaging of the radiators. And he's actually got more radiators than he might have but they're smaller and they're spread all over the back of the car giving him using every available bit of space is that the right way to perceive this yes i mean very much i've got a, a rather you probably unique view on how newey does things i don't think newey is someone that actually comes up with his own innovations most of the time he actually is very good at looking what other people have done in the past and reapplying it so like the you know, the exhaust blown diffuser or active suspension was very much those sort of things, stuff that he's brought back 
and has got the engineering and aerodynamics working. So you're right. What he's done is copied Toro Rosso with the centerline cooling. He's copied what was originally a Renault idea, but was equally copied by Sauber, Ferrari and Haas with the V-shaped side pods where you've got the radiators stacked one mm. above each other. So, yeah, he really has kind of just repackaged everything, as you say, to get those gullies, to get the airflow over the top of that side pod, over that kind of beaked inlet, down the gullies and over to the diffuser and the beam wing, which is where you really start to make downforce at the back of the car. So, yeah, it's quite quite unique in an almost conventional and uh, copycat way. Ferrari and Mercedes, where are they at now? Both of them completed a reasonable number of laps, not as many as... Red Bull, obviously. Mercedes seemed to have a bit of a stressful day in and out of the garage a lot. How do you see them so far? And what have we seen on those cars that are different from the launch? Well, on both those cars, really, there isn't a huge amount of detail jumping out at us. A few little sort of details. We're starting to see the new driver cooling duct, uh, which was introduced uh, this year after the heat of Qatar last year. Lots of teams are using it as a little aerodynamic aid as much as it has been for driver cooling. Uh, Merck have got theirs just on the uh, top of the chassis, almost above the driver's feet. So where it will cool the driver, but probably has quite a useful aerodynamic effect in that position as well. Not much else I've seen on there. I mean, it's really early days. I mean, I think Mercedes, as you say, had a difficult day. I can remember in the, you know, their years of dominance, they'd come straight out the first day of testing and go straight into long runs of like, 20 laps. <laughs> so different, different times for them. But I think it's too early to say, but I think that they're they're certainly in the in the, the ballpark uh, for what we've seen so far. So there's no red flags really to say that they've dropped it this year, and one of them should be you know dropping back any further. So can I you, think can you we talk was... about the legality of the uh, the fourth element on the Mercedes front wing? Their um, three point one element front wing, as I call it. Yeah, there has been some talk about it. Mercedes have obviously said, yes, we've, you know, we spoke to the FIA about this all the way along. And from what I saw of it at the launch point, it looked completely legal. Today, I'm a little bit more sceptical because the, 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 tra- the last flap, the fourth flap on the front wing is full width all the way up to like that, that sort of center section where you have the split in the wing anyway. And then it's supposed to go into this very narrow strip. But what it isn't actually now doing, those two strips aren't connecting. And I think this is where we can have a problem for Mercedes. Now, of course, the big deep element has to be adjustable as part of the design of the front wing. But it isn't actually meeting the fish plate that that the two um, pivot on. And I can see that the FIA may ask to have that bit looked at. But in terms of the general concept, it remains, as far as I'm concerned, legal, albeit, I hate to say it, not in the spirit of the regulations, but not in the point of the regulations. You know, we went through all this work uh, to create cars that were easy to overtake and developments like this, which would be pushing off a big vortex, a bit like the old Y250 vortex, out behind the front wheels, out around the car, creating lots of outwash, is detrimental to racing. So... You know, they, you know, let's forget about, you know, that, that horrible term, spirit of the regulations. It is actually trying to undermine what those 
post-2022 regulations were trying to do. So I, I can see that there will be more discussion about this um, as we go forwards. And um, maybe it lasts for a year and it will get banned, uh, or maybe it will get banned earlier, or maybe the FA, like they've done with other aspects of the front wing end plate and the rear wing end plate, actually decide to say, look, just leave it. Let's, you know, let's focus on 2026. Well, so, you, you make a good right. point there because a, a, a trigger for the FIA might be if another team rings the technical director and says, oh, we want to go the Mercedes route. What's the wording on that? And then the alarm bells will go off. If everybody starts running it, then we really are in trouble with the uh, the essence of the regulations, as you say. It'll probably be another team that will trigger that. It will be. I mean, it's quite easy. They don't even have to go as far as creating the Mercedes 3.1 shape wing. All they need to do is just cut their adjustable flap element short of the fish plate where they, they, they pivot and say, is that legal? And in my opinion, that is, you know, dubiously legal. So if someone suggested that, that would therefore, mm. as you say, move on to Mercedes and say, no, you're going to have to change it. They can change it and still have that general shape to be legal. But I think, you know, I think there will be more discussions. And certainly you've heard lots of uh, the media today kind of stoking this up, speaking to other team technical directors, trying to find out what's going on. And uh, Pat Simmons has sort of said the same thing as I've said, really. You know, it's, it's legal. It's not in the spirit of the regulations. So what's your gut feeling about the Mercedes at the moment in terms of how quick it is? relative to Ferrari and, and Red Bull? Well, I think at this stage to Ferrari, I don't think, you know, oh, we can't pick them apart. Um, I, without, I haven't really looked at the times and the data in any depth, but I think Mercedes really have clung, clawed a big chunk of that back. So looking at the three teams, I would expect Red Bull to be leading, but I think Mercedes will be the one snapping at their heels, perhaps more than Ferrari will, uh, is my feeling, you know, only after one day of testing. And looking at the Ferrari now, you, you said in the video uh, at the launch that you were a bit surprised that they're as conservative as they are at the rear with the with the pull rod rear and they're perhaps using up more space there than they need to. Do you see do you see them changing that rear end as the season goes on? Does it look like a car they're going to rapidly update as the season's underway? Do you still go along that, that theory? Oh, absolutely. The car will develop through the year. It just seems strange that they go so safe for the first four races or how many races it will be before they introduce a change to it. But as I say, what I saw uh, of the car, its launch is it's very modular and it's very easy for them to take panels out and stick panels on. So we could even see them trying stuff on a Friday and putting the car back to conventional spec um, for the rest of the weekend. So I think Ferrari have got work to do on that car as, you know, as do Mercedes, no doubt as well. They've probably got things that they're going to want to be playing with. So, you know, the point I made about being a little bit disappointed with, with the Ferrari, maybe less so with the Merck, is that, again, if we want a championship battle, they've got to come out fighting at round one, and they can't yeah. sort of play it safe, because clearly Red Bull aren't, um, and they've got, to, you know, they've got to catch them up and overtake them, which is a big development ask for any team. McLaren actually finished the day second quickest, just ahead mm. of the Ferrari of Carlos Sainz, Lando Norris at the wheel on this occasion. Impressed with the McLaren? Anything changes there since the launch? You didn't see a lot. We couldn't see a lot at the launch at the McLaren, could we? No. And uh, I was kind of hoping to see a lot more detail on the car uh, as it was running. Nothing massively jumping out. We spoke uh, in a previous video that they've got this little side pod winglet added to the car, which isn't it's a big visual thing, but I don't think it's, you know, it, it, it's 
anything that's kind of primary or secondary performance. So, yeah, um, the car seems to be working really well. And I think more than anything for, for McLaren is getting that car working in the way the drivers are comfortable with. Because I think that will bring almost as much time as, you know, normal performance aero work and stuff like that. Because I think it's been a, a handicap of that car for a few years. It's been hard to handle. And if they've got that right, and certainly from the limited amount I saw it on track um, through uh, videos today, you know, it looks good. Uh, maybe they have shuffled up to join, you know, the top four um, in a more permanent way. Mm. So, yeah, I think things are things are positive there. Um, again, obviously, with the caveat that this is really early days. We we never really did a detailed description of the Williams, or it's the first time we've seen the Williams, and also the Haas. <laughs> You just want to talk us through that. You've mentioned the Williams already. It didn't have a great day in terms of reliability today. No, it's, it, I mean, it's quite strange. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what was wrong with the Williams. I think it was a gearbox issue, which actually brings up um, one of the key features. Um, generally, the Williams is a, quite a conventional car. It's to say very much one of those 2024 template cars. Big underbite on the front of the side pods, you know, gully water slides going down the back. Everything on the car just looks nice and neat and tidy and very logical. There's nothing sort of shouting out. But they have decided to keep the 2023 Mercedes gearbox package. Now, as we've spoken about lots of times before we speak, the gearbox consists of the, you know, the, the gears plus the gear cluster itself, which is a self-contained unit called the cassette or the cartridge. And then you've got the outer carbon fiber case, which we call the carrier, and that defines what your rear suspension is very Red Bull-like in terms of the package of the new Mercedes uh, pushrod setup. So therefore, Williams keeping the older version with a, a slightly unusual length in comparison to the new one and pull rod is detrimental potentially in terms of performance. Now, it's not a kind of a, you know, the car could never be competitive in that format. It's just they're giving away some diffuser performance with this. Um, and James Valser says, well, yeah, it is part of the, the, the budget cap. We decided not to buy the new gearbox and spend the money on that. And instead, they're um, playing around with um, the old one, saving their money, spending their development in other areas, which you know is obviously what they feel is important to them. So that's um, quite unusual. The rest of the car, as I say, uh, is all quite conventional. And the Williams, conventional, even to the point where they have a display on the steering wheel now. Amazing. Yeah. That, that was the other thing. I was, I was trying to remember, I said there was something else really important I had to mention about the Williams because it, it, you know, it is generally a conventional cookie-cutter car. But yeah, they have a new steering wheel pattern that we saw uh, as a little teaser on their launch video uh, of the livery. And yes, they've gone from having the McLaren dash display on the chassis in front of the cockpit to actually being on the steering wheel. And they've got a very triangular-shaped steering wheel uh, pattern underneath with all of the dials and everything. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's been so much talk about the steering wheel since 2014. And it's probably, for me, it's the most asked question I get. Uh, and I must have answered it hundreds, if not thousands of times. It's not that important. Their decision back then was probably quite a snap decision late on a Friday afternoon. It's like, where do we put it? Oh, stick it on, stick it on the chassis. It takes some load out of the steering. It makes the steering a bit you know, less inertia, a bit quicker for the drivers to work with. Um, less work for the hydraulic pump to overcome for the power assistance on the steering. They've gone back. Uh, I'd be surprised if anyone uh, in the team really notices the difference. The drivers weren't complaining about it. The engineers aren't complaining about it. It's just a tiny design decision. But yeah, um, you know, end of an era. 
uh, it's kind of sad in some respects. I don't know what I'm going to talk about for the uh, next few years. Well, new era, speaking of eras, at Haas, with new management and the team, Kamatsu-san, very good day for him. The most number of laps covered by any team, incredibly. A few glitches, but nonetheless, good job. What, what do you think of the Haas? Oh, well, I, yeah, I think if we had to rate the teams from one to ten, I think, sadly, we have to put Haas at the bottom at the moment. Um, again, the car generally, you know, it's conventional. As I say, it's one of these cookie-cutter cars. It's got all of the features that we used to, we would expect. It's got some new features on it. It's got quite complicated floor-edge wings. It's got some complication in the front wing end plate, cutaway in at the rear wing as well. But... You know, it does feel a car from late last year rather than something that's rolled out. If, you know, if we take, say, for example, the Mercedes or the uh, Red Bull, it doesn't feel like a you know, fresh, clean sheet 2024 car. But then maybe that's the point. I don't think Haas's problem, I mean, I thought some of their problems will be in the amount of downforce, but I think they've got much bigger issues in how they operate that team, which is almost a completely different discussion. Yeah. Um, they've really got to sort out their, yeah, their tyre woes. And uh, you would hope that Kamatsu is the, is the person that can kind of lead that onwards now that he is the top dog there at the team. Uh, let's hope he doesn't get mired down in you know, all the other minutiae that you get as being a team principal. Um, and we've seen many very good technical people become team principals and it's a very different discipline and you do lose your focus. Um, so you know, there is a concern there, but you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. The team have got some growing to do and there's nothing on that car that can't be changed with an aggressive um, update package. They've got the wind tunnel time. It's hoped that they've got the budget um to, to progress that car but you know there's nothing really on it that's worth talking about other than just one little point i would love to make is every time we see a launch car particularly when it's um uh, a rendered image or um you know something like the red bull that was kind of very carefully hidden on stage everyone replies to my, my analysis going ah oh, but that won't be the car at bahrain and ah oh, that's not you know that's just a dummy car their render was incredibly accurate to the car that we've seen testing today, as are all of the cars. I mean, I think apart from some of the things that were hidden, certainly the big changes that we picked up on all of the cars during the launches are present. So, you know, there is some you know, reason but, that we do this analysis. But speaking of that, Scouts, what was the what's what's happened with the front of the Alpine side pods there? Because you were a bit dubious about that with the black sections on the front. Yeah, I, I still remain dubious. I've been looking for some good pictures today, but I've not found them yet. But they are now in carbon fibre. So that takes one of my questions of doubt. If you remember, I was saying that they were painted black when everything yeah. else on the car seemed to be bare carbon. Maybe they were just 3D printed mock-ups to get the car on the, on the launch pad, as it were, while the carbon bits were being made up. But um, still, I think that that's an area where Alpine have got, you know, something to play with and something to gain some performance from. So I'm half-heartedly admitting that maybe I was wrong, but I still, I'm still <laughs> optimistic that there's, there's, there's some development there. So I'll keep, I'll keep looking at the pictures and seeing what I can find in the shadows. And um, we'll, we'll talk later about that. Well, Scarves, thanks so much for your analysis. At the moment, we've got to give you about 90%, I think, in terms of what you saw and what you think they're doing and what's going on out there. Very, very good, as ever. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Peter. The inevitable Scarves, absolutely brilliant. Big thanks to him, of course. Nobody better in the world of Formula One to discuss the technical details. Quite often, he has engineers phoning him up, Formula One engineers phoning him up,
asking his opinion about various things. And it's quite, it's very time consuming walking down a Formula One pit lane with scarves because the number of people that come up to him and ask questions usually, but sometimes make comments. And it's just a great privilege to be with him always. So thank you again, Scarves, for that. Interesting, I was talking about Aeo Kamatsu, the new team principal at Haas. And I have said in a live stream before that I thought his calming influence may well be very beneficial to the team. And I still think that is the case. Uh, bear in mind also, we Scarves was talking then about time management on the Haas, that he was a Bridgestone engineer for a while as well, which, um, of course, that, that knowledge will already have been imparted, but, but it's into what he does at Haas and what he has done at Haas. But it's bearing in mind that he has got that background and he's now team principal. It's kind of cool, I think, that Formula One's got a team principal with that sort of technical um, basis to his uh, ongoing career so good luck to them hope they go well and amazing that they did actually record the most number of laps today so that's got to be a plus i mean at testing the number of laps you do otherwise is not really relevant is it but with testing brand new cars i think that is quite a significant uh factor the number of laps you can do day one is quite impressive so yeah all congratulations to Haas on that four four five laps ahead of red bull amazing really if you think about it and the other point of course scarves is talking about how Red Bull now, Adrian Newey adopting the sort of back of the roll hoop radiator layout that had first been tried by 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 Alfa Tori before that Toro Rosso. And the immediate thought was, well, that's good use of the B team, isn't it? Get them to try something and then if it works, we'll run it the following year. But of course, that isn't the case. I just want to clarify that, that that would not be allowed by the Formula One regulations. They would not be allowed to have any sort of interchange like that. And, and when Scarves was referring to Toro Rosso doing that, he was going back to, I don't know, probably 2017, I think, when they were doing that. So they've been doing that for quite a long time, that's for sure. So Adrian's known about that. But it's an interesting point he makes, that Adrian's very good at, if he's got a goal that he wants to achieve, which is that he wants these channels to be on this profile and this width, how's he going to achieve that? Oh, I'm going to have to have to maximize the amount of space I've got in the car now. I'm going to have to make some smaller radiators to fit in there, another radiator to fit in there. How did that team do that? How did that team do this? And that's why Adrian is so good, because he's not afraid, obviously, to look at what other people are doing. And that's why you often see him on the grid with a notebook and a pencil looking at all the other cars. And that's what that's all about, in case he needs to use that concept in the future for something else. And I'm sure when Red Bull were running that, uh, sorry, when Alfa Torre were running that, or Toro Rosso were running that set in 2017, Adrian wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be really good for me in 2024. But he knew about it and he could apply it. So that's that's part of what the genius of Adrian Newey is all about. Anyway, so that was Scarbs um, on Bahrain. I'm sure you've got lots of questions now. So some of them will, I think, already been answered by that video, but I'm not going to just go over them just because of that so everybody hopefully you'll get a chance i don't know how many we've got i think it looks like a lot of people lining up there but the first one is lee kambanga he was the first to get a question in long before we went live so that's how i'm doing things at the moment um lee hi peter hope you're doing well i've just one question who do you think what do you think about the rb20 and how they sort of change the car it seems like they're very confident in what they're doing well, as Scarb says, yeah, I mean, the impressive thing, I'm just going to move the camera back a little bit. It seems a little bit over the top large, doesn't it? One second. Um, hope the whole thing doesn't fall off the end. <clears throat> it's probably a bit better, isn't it? Yeah, that's a bit better. Um, I think the, hang on, I'm just going to change the angle too. Talk about, this is all last minute stuff, you see, because 
I didn't have as much time as I normal. I didn't have as much time as I normally have to set everything up because I'm so busy putting that together. I think Scarbs has said it. You know, Red Bull could easily have just done a development of the RB19 <clears throat> and tidied that up in a couple of areas, maybe save some weight. Because uh, even if you're under the weight limit, you can always benefit from that, can't you? Just ballast or well, not ballast, but I mean, you can, you can, you need that. You need that margin, and it's not, it's not an easy weight limit to get down to. That's for sure. And but they haven't just done that. They've looked at a whole new thing, haven't they? They've thought, right now we're going to re, we're going to put new architecture in the car, the internals of the car, and we've got all these ducts and that vertical duct and the shark duct and everything else and the halo duct, and that's all. Oh, that's all new stuff and and you know you that's where they're not brave but that's where they're really powerful that they can have the confidence to do that i say they i'm talking about the red bull design team and for that to be signed off within the budget cap and to do that so well so i think they've done an amazing job in answering your question i really do i think that's um you know it's bad news for everybody else really so this is from uh, i racing aussie uh, g'day mate, how you doing? Uh, I haven't looked to see you won the T20 today. I need to later on. I'll see, it was, they call it the the Trans-Tasman Championship. Why don't you call it the Tasman Championship? I mean, it worked perfectly well when it was the Tasman in the great days of the Tasman. It's going to be the Trans-Tasman Australian New Zealand. Anyway, g'day Peter, all of your content is, is appointment viewing. Thank you very much, love it all. Firstly, could you see a perfect storm at Red Bull with Horner, seeing him and Adrian joining a Ferrari super team in 26? I, I, as I said last time, I think it's a bit late in the career of Adrian to be, to be doing that. I'm, I may be doing him a disservice, but I, you know, he's been around a long time now, and he's not, not getting any younger, is he? And he still wants to do lots of things. Probably wants to race the classic cars a bit more and do this and do that. And he's just done his yacht, isn't he? So, to go into the mayhem of a Ferrari thing, and of course, it would be massive money if he did that. But then with the massive money comes the massive pressure as well. And there ain't no pressure like the pressure that comes from the Ferrari fans and the Ferrari board and everybody else expecting results. And I, my gut feeling says he wouldn't accept that, regardless of how much money it was. Christian Horner, um, that's another story. Uh, obviously, there's some background stuff going on there, which I'm not going to get into here because there's no genuine information coming out of anywhere yet. But I, I think you know Christian was very good at um, running Adrian, and Ferrari could say, well, let, we'll get Adrian, we'll get Christian, and we'll put our arm around Christian, and he'll get us Adrian. It could work, but I don't think they'll do that. I, 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 they might. I doubt it. I mean, they've got Freddie Vasseur, who's pretty good and pretty organized and logical in the way he thinks. So I don't, I can't see either of those two things happening, to be honest. Um, so. Anyway, another question, I think, from the same same Aussie, yeah. Uh, question two, I've been dying to ask you about your weekend memories of the time Nigel saved your life from a big rip at Rio Beach. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking about that the other day. He didn't save my life. He saved Peter Collins' life, my best, one of my best friends and great guy. I met him in Australia and he, I got him his job. I helped him get his job at Team Lotus as the assistant team manager. He was, I don't think his wife's ever really forgiven me. He was getting married and my telegram, as you had to send in those days, and I was in England, he was in Australia, uh, to Peter was, um, congratulations to you both. Peter, I think if you can get over here straight away, I think I can get you in at 
uh, an interview with Andrew Ferguson. He's looking for an assistant team manager at Team Lotus because Andrew didn't want to fly anymore. And he just got the next plane to England and he got the job. And that's partly how we got Nigel into Lotus back in 1979. I had Peter in there and, and we worked together as, as to get Nigel in there. Anyway, we were very close and um, and Peter did uh, travel to races and he I think he, he earned Colin Chapman's respect. And when Nigel and Elio were together at Lotus, which what would have been 81, um, they went, they both, you know, I mean, it was, everybody did. It was this beach at Rio. We all stayed at the Sheraton and the, it wasn't the main beach that you see. It wasn't it wasn't Copacabana or anything like that. It was the beach that assigned effectively to the Sheraton Hotel. And being Australians, Peter and I are, were used to the beach being closed if the rips were really bad or cross flags or something like that. But of course, none of us really had any experience of what it was like in Brazil if things like that happened. And reality is, as I now know, as we now know, that the rips are always bad on that beach. And I'd never really experienced a rip before in Australia surfing. I did quite a lot of it because, well, it was it was well run and the beaches we had weren't prone to that. But I, I, I remember going into that thing. I ran in, did my usual thing, ran in really hot, dived into the surf. And then I just felt the, the bottom of the of the sand just fell away. It's just like, boom, straight down a valley, if you like. And it was just, I was totally out of my depth. And the next thing I knew was just this current just dragging me out. And luckily I... I'd, I'd been reading up on what to do in those situations and I, I remembered that the thing to do is to relax and just use the, the next wave to try and bring you back in a little bit and just use the waves to come back. And it took me about 20 minutes when I got back in. But Peter was really in trouble and he he was waving his arms and I was I couldn't see what was going on, but I did see Nigel just running into the surf. And he, yeah, he did that. You know, he went straight out to Peter got him under his arms like that and just just force of nature unbelievable strength from Nigel Mansell he brought Peter Collins back onto the beach and uh, saved his life no question about it and it's not the first time I've seen Nigel do something like that and and people forget that about Nigel he is larger than life in so many ways and no surprise that he um you know, at one stage of his life, he, he, he was working as a special policeman on the Isle of Man because he's just sort of got that DNA as well, that sort of, there's an emergency here. I'm going to get in and sort this emergency out. So that was really nice how, um, how Nigel did that. But thanks for the question. You know, I was finally, I was thinking about that the other day. I really was. Uh, why was I thinking about it? I was thinking about, I miss Rio, I think, as a Grand Prix, because it was a Grand Prix, despite that, and despite... Jonathan Palmer getting mugged and all his stuff stolen and despite Emerson Fittipaldi <laughs> who's a bit of a star in Brazil going to and this was long before we raced at Rio but I remember talking to Marielena his wife and they they went to when he won the championship they went to Rio or something and they went to the beach Copacabana and um, there was somebody had drowned and you know, sadly the body was there on the beach but the punchline is it was still there the next day. I remember Emerson telling me that. So this is from NIX. Hello, Mr. Windsor. Would you agree to the RB19 looking as if it is floating on bumpy parts of the track compared to everybody else? Well, yeah, I think Red Bull 
as, as Scarb said in one of the videos we, we've done, I'm just going to get a dash of coffee here because I haven't really had a chance to have any refreshment at all because this is Pergamino coffee, by the way, from Colombia. Look at that. Lovely cup. Unbelievably nice coffee. In fact, this is a good moment to, because um, my wife just left this. Oh, the smell of fresh coffee. Unbelievable. This is Pergamino coffee from Medellin, Colombia. And that is Alonzo the dog. And they've actually named the coffee, this this blend of coffee, after Alonzo the dog. And he was a rescue dog that they found near their big um, farm where they grow the coffee beans. And he patrols the farm now. Very much like Fernando patrols Formula One, I think. So big thanks. Yeah, that all came from my friend Osmond. But oh, I can really do with this coffee. Very cool cups, don't they? Sorry, I divert. I'm, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, yeah, I mean, Scarb says Adrian's been very good on dual rate springs and damping and all those complicated things that are above the heads of most engineers, alone people like me. And he's done a great job on that. And they do float. And he can use more curb. And he can do all these things. And I don't think that the RB20 is any less of an animal. In fact, it's probably more of an animal, which is bad news for everybody else as well. Nick Taylor. Really enjoy the parallels you refer to between old and new Formula One drivers. What would Rob make of Senna Reutemann with their bop, 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 bop throttle control? And do any current drivers do the same? I'm not aware of Carlos ever doing that. Uh, Carlos was incredibly precise with his throttle application always. I mean, he was like like Max, incredibly patient. And you'd and, and Nigel, you'd find him mid-corner with no sound at all, just waiting for the moment. And then it'd be bah, and perfect throttle control. But Senna was the one that was always bah, bah, bah. And yeah, I've, I've talked to Rob about that a lot. I've talked to, I talked to Ayrton about it a lot when he was in Formula 3, why he did that. And he just said, you know, it was something he'd been doing since karting. It's just something that he liked to do. It's a bit like drivers who who like to sort of do this to the steering before they get to a fast corner. They're not actually correcting a slide. They're just sort of telling the car, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. And it's a bit like Ayrton saying, I'm ready, I'm ready. I want to get on that power. And he, yeah, he said, yeah, you know, I, for sure it'd be better without it, but I can't stop it. So that's just the way I drive. And as it happened, I think it certainly wasn't a bad thing when he started to drive with turbo engines in Formula One because there was a lot of throttle lag with the turbo. In other words, you'd, you could put your foot flat on the throttle and literally there would be a delay before the power would come in. So doing that with the throttle probably helped Ayrton a little bit. But that's not why he did it. He just did it anyway. He would have done it even with a normally aspirated engine. But I think it pressed, impressed the Honda people probably. I don't ever remember... I've asked Alan Prost several times whether or not Honda ever put pressure on him to do the same thing, and they didn't, which suggests that the Honda didn't necessarily think it was an advantage. But, um, yeah, what can you say? I mean, he just had incredibly sensitive pedal, throttle, and, you know, everything was sensitive with, with that, and incredibly sensitive. Um, I've got a top chat here. Going to have a look? I'm a bit confused. Oh, here we go. Um, very good. Being Colombian, got into Formula One following Montoya. This is Daniel Hernandez. Can you comment on his driving style and his decision to leave Formula One? Who on the grid today is closer to his style? Yeah, Juan Pablo, brilliant. Um, my, I was to, it's funny, I was talking to my wife. My wife and I were talking yesterday about, well, only because we've been watching my son in this golf tournament the other day, where he finished tied for fifth. He had one bad hole, which kind of blew the day, but it's still tied fifth, not bad. 
anyway, getting back to the real matter, and, and I was saying how nervous I was getting just watching him, because you're not allowed to talk to these juniors when they're playing golf. You just have to walk down the side. You can't talk to them at all, which is ludicrous, really, because they don't have a caddy. And, and part of golf is working with a caddy and discussing line on the putt or, you know, what bunker shot you're going to play or whatever. And you can't do any of that. And these 10, 12, 11, 12 year old kids have to make all their own decisions without talking to anybody. And it's all strict silence everywhere. It's bizarre. And but I was saying I, I found it quite nerve wracking. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember talking to Juan Pablo's wife, uh, mother, actually, Juan Pablo's mother, about why she when we were chatting in, in Colombia, why she didn't go to races. She said, oh, no, I'd have a heart attack. I went to races and I had to watch Juan Pablo driving. I could never do it. Um, but you know what? He was always he always gave me the impression of being totally in control of what he was doing and very, very over the you needed to feel the back end of the car there's no doubt about that very ronnie peterson and yes he would make mistakes because of that because to 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 go the last tenth he either had to get the power on sooner or break a bit later all of which leaves you in a in a place where you've just got to rely on reflexes to get out of the the problem whereas there are manipulative drivers who don't get into that situation they're just telling the car what they want the car to do, Max Verstappen. And to some extent, Kimi Raikkonen at that point at McLaren. And, but Juan Pablo was always just driving over the edge of the car on the back of the car, and that's how he loved to do it. But everything was very, very uh, supple and smooth. And I remember doing a lap in the wet with him, funnily enough, at that um, track, I've forgotten the name of it now, that oval track they built in the middle of England. I was up there one day and he was up there with an M3. And there was a road course there, and I did a couple of laps with him in the M3 in the wet, and he was just fabulous. He was there were no edges to his driving at all. Everything was smooth, and he was just talking in a very languid way as we drove around. And that's how he drove. But I, you know, because of that limitation, because he was a an oversteery, reflexy driver, but his reflexes weren't spiky; they were beautiful. Uh, but because he was that, that's where a guy like Kimi was always going to have him, really. And he got pretty near to Ralph. Ralph wasn't a Kimi, but he was short corner-ish and pretty good uh, in terms of of economy of the road that he was using, going into the corner and getting the car straight. So Juan Pablo, a couple of times, you know, Ralph had the better of him, qualifying at Monaco the year Juan Pablo won, good example. And But... And Juan Pablo was good in traffic, brilliant in traffic, and he was just a, a fighter like Fernando Alonso. You know, the car in front, that is the car I'm going to pass. And he, I, I was talking to him not so long ago because his son is now doing Formula 3, and he finds it so dispiriting because of the tyre situation now. And he said, you know, I've told my son, and everybody's telling him, you just the first half of the race, you just forget to drive, just cruise around, look after the tyres, and see if you've got tyres in half reasonable shape to go racing in the second half of the race. And, and the tone of voice was, you know, I'm glad I don't have to do this because that's not motor racing. And that was Juan Pablo. Uh, he was um, he was fabulous. I, I would say Ronnie was the nearest I could think of in terms of style to Juan Pablo. He was, um, you know, he was a, a top man, very quick driver. So I'm having a bit of an issue here with this pop-out chat. I don't know why I can't get it onto the screen. Oh, here we are. Perfect. Got it. Okay, I think... Um, now I've got to get back to where we were. Okay. Aaron Lee. Hi, Peter. If it is... Oh, 
I do nick yeah so I answered that previous one hi Peter if it is the driver's subjective feel of the car and road that is important to a lap time I found it really interesting when you said that engineers don't exactly need to know too much about it to do their job also when you go to Melbourne where do you like to watch from to compare the drivers uh we well, are yeah, because there is so much telemetry now and there's so much information on what the car is doing that if you if you actually use all the information correctly by which i mean if you've got enough time to put it all together and match it all together you can get a pretty accurate picture of what's going on and i think the days of a driver wanting to go stiffer at the front or more front wing or whatever it is to make the car easier to drive are probably gone because they can predict what will happen if you do that it'll make the car slower in some other aspect of the circuit so yes i think the drivers i don't think the engineers need to know as much what they need to know is what change is going to make the car faster and what that means is they thrive on drivers who don't say very much but just do the lap time and that is the lap time that car's going to do and that's the great gift of a driver like max or lewis or charles and there will be others we could throw in there as well but let's but those three are classic examples of drivers of the current era who if you if you put on rear flap or you well, if you could put on rear flap or say front flap uh, which you can do um or you change the toe in or you go a little bit stiffer you will see in the lap time and on parts of the lap sectors as well particular corners exactly the effect of that because you know that max verstappen is absolutely on the limit of what that car will do and he's adapting the lap to make sure he maximizes the car in every dimension you probably need three laps to do it but uh, that's what he's doing and that's the critical thing if you've got a driver who's three tenths off off max's pace not his own pace but max's pace then there's a great tendency of course to go around in circles with the setup of the car and not really make progress because the engineers are feeding off information that isn't real in effect and of course the teams that don't have a lewis or a max or a charles are in danger of going in those directions a lot i think mclaren um will thrive on piastri's input and i think lando will thrive on the setup that Leander that Lando's able to give compared with the setup that Lando wants and they'll put the two together. I think that's a very good combination. Um and I think Ricardo Sonoda probably works quite well in that respect. And probably Charles and, and Carlos because very different, you know, Carlos wants this, he he needs a little bit like Montoya he needs to be on top of the back end of the car. He's got long corners, he needs to get on the power soon and all those things and 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 uh, and Charles Charles the opposite to that but if you combine the two you've got a pretty good picture so if you haven't got those two contrasting things it's and you've got two oversteery type drivers i'm just trying to think of as an example of that i suppose um albon sergeant 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 tries quite hard to have short corners albon's corners are certainly longer than lando's uh, but he's very supple as well very smooth like lando so potentially if williams had a short corner driver in there had a piastri for example they potentially might get more out of the car as the season goes on if that makes sense um hi peter what is your favorite livery this year and or in formula 1 history i like the jag and benson and hedges a lot also now that 
makeup brands joined would you mind seeing cigarette brands back <laughs> um, well in answer to your first question favorite livery this year mm, I thought it was going to be the Sauber but it not sure it looks quite as good in the flesh as I thought it would. I don't know why. I, I'm kind of sad there are no yellow cars out there. Which kind of leads into your next thing, the Benson Hedges livery on the Jordan. Um, Ferrari have got a lot of yellow on them now, haven't they? A bit like the old sports car days. The yellow, I presume, is to give Shell a bit more um, ID on the car. But if you look back at some of the 70s Ferrari 312p sports cars, they had a lot of yellow on them. Look nice. I'm not sure that yellow works. I think it does, probably. Uh, I've got to come up with an answer here. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'll give Sauber the benefit of the doubt at the moment because I'm a great fan of that Pescarello green. And it's, you know, I think it'll be... I think if we see it in different lights, it'll probably be a great colour, I think. When you see them amongst the other cars on the grid, so I'll go for that one still. Um, although, I'm, Bahrain is, so far I'm slightly ambivalent about it. In history, oh, <laughs> you're not going to like this because it, it sounds as if I'm being absurdly obtuse, but I would say it was the 5960 front engine Scarab, that beautiful metallic flake light blue they had which I don't think I've ever seen on another Grand Prix car since some cars have come near it but I really love that blue and I think it could still um, the Williams tried to get near it a couple of years ago but it didn't work at all they didn't have the right wasn't the right shade and it certainly wasn't metallic flake in the way that uh, that it was on the Scarab so probably metallic flakes too heavy to have as a, as a paint these days anyway. So I've, I've always loved that Scarab. And then beyond that, I would say green and yellow Lotus, very hard to beat. Uh, circa 65 shade of green. BRM, BRG with that flame orange nose, also very hard to beat. Ferrari in NART colors, blue and white, great. Um, All-time favorite. I suppose it would have to be green and yellow Lotus, I think. Lotus 33. 1965 green with the yellow stripe I don't think green works without a stripe or and it can't have the orange unless it's the dark green of the BRMs of that period in my opinion I think Ligiers always look really nice actually if I think about it and Matras too uh, Frank Williams early dark blue was not bad as well that was very nice uh, yeah I don't know I can go on forever on this I better carry on to the next one um I like the Jag and Benson Hedges. Yeah, the Benson Hedges was always neat and tidy, wasn't it? The yellow is a nice colour for a racing car. I'm surprised that nobody's gone to yellow. Um, we do cigarette brands. Well, I talked about them at the beginning of the show and how it wasn't their fault, but, I mean, the money just poured out of the sky and everybody, of some description, had a cigarette sponsor. And, but everybody just spent whatever they had and team and Formula One became very, in, in, well, just fat really. There was too much excess fat in Formula One then and nobody thought to start tightening the belt at the time when they should have, which was when cigarette advertising was definitely getting more difficult and it was clear that other sports were coming up next to Formula One and offering better value for money and nobody took heed of that and that's why today it's such a struggle to get a full title sponsorship of the serious money that Formula One teams really want. And, the, and, and instead, we're going down this path of 
you know, so many races that you lose track of where we are, what country we're in, and because that's the only guaranteed form of income that we have. Sad but true. Um, so I've done that one. So Steve Madinza, Madiza. Hi Peter. What are your what are your thoughts on the Red Bull vertical inlet on the side pod? Could be an S duct. Well, my thought was what does Scarbs think about it? And um, we know what Scarb thinks about it. It's not an S duct, and it is actually feeding new um, intercoolers that Adrian Newey's put smaller intercoolers. So he's got everything sort of using up all the available space. So he's got more room for the tunnels at the back of the car, and um, it's not a Ferrari type S duct. So Scarb says. So um, yeah, good job. Scarbs is there to help me along. Here's another super chat from Brandon W. Mike Elliott's idea wasn't the worst after all. Oh, what's all that? Um, no, I'm sure it wasn't. Very good point, Brandon. I think I'll come back to the uh, top one. Um, showing my ignorance here. Mike Elliott, see Mercedes? Talking about zero pod, maybe? It's probably what's going on there, I suspect. But as Scarb says, I don't think Red Bull are going down the zero pod route either. We shouldn't make that mistake. Whatever Scarb says is um, is is the reality. Okay. Um, Flash Gordon says, oh, well, he's talking to Mr. Bungle. I'm just now starting to take a look at AI. I read a few books by Melanie Mitchell. Watch some Eleanor. Anyway, I'm not sure that's relevant to anything. Um, Val Van Balzup, best thing you can do if you aren't a Max fan is just cheer on the 24-24 anyway. There have never been a perfect season, but maybe, just maybe, it will be this year. Well, you never know, do you? A lot going to happen this year. Uh, American elections, apart from anything else. Uh, that's enough to worry about, isn't it? Um, Keith Sindal Dinabantu says, I wonder if Mercedes deliberately held back during today's testing. I hope Craig can offer us some insights on Merck's performance today. Red Bull is still a bully planted on the ground. Um, yeah, well, Craig says no red flags. He thinks the Mercedes is looking quite promising. I'm saying, hmm, not sure. I totally agree with that. But I do know somebody very close to the team who described it, having spoken to somebody in the team, when they say how did it go today and they and one word came back stressful so anyway alexander says alexander wurzen reiner thanks scarbs thank you for that one alexander jayanth knew he might beat mercedes with zero pods concept well you know scarbs is saying it isn't zero pods so let's not get too carried away on that inverted free solo perez has no chance in that second red bull like zero percent chance well i don't think you're right there he's got the he's got the best car in formula one he's only got to beat one driver max verstappen and in theory he should beat everybody else and he's and max isn't going to win every race so in theory every race perez uh, max doesn't win perez should win shouldn't he or not that's why he's in red bull from his point of view um so Patrick Lemaire says he's got a solution for this absurd naming of the Visa Red Bull F1, RBF1. Let's just call the second team Menardi. I'm not saying Visa Cash App. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. It all started from Giancarlo Menardi. That's a great idea. Let's give him some credit again. Very good, Patrick. 100% on that question. Um, oh, yeah, it's all AI stuff. It's over my head. Um, Copenhagen calling finally a proper one t 
test day update. Thanks again, Peter. Well, thank you. I won't be doing a second one, but I will do another one with Scarbs after the third one on Friday, because then he can round up the last two days and, and tell us what he's seen over those two days as well. So that's already teed up with Scarbs. So um, yeah, two great drivers that you let race. That's Formula One at its best. Yeah, it is when when you've got two great drivers in the same car. That is brilliant Formula One. That's Sterling Moss, Juan Manuel Fangio in Mercedes. That's Nigel Mansell, Nelson Piquet at Williams. It's Alan Prost at and Senna at McLaren. It's Ronnie Peterson, Mario Andretti at Lotus. It's you know everybody remembers those great years, and there are many others as well. Whether or not they're the right way to win a drivers' championship for that team is another matter. But yeah, as fans, we love it, don't we? Um, Toto is going to break some tables if Red Bull dominate with zero, zero pod design. Well, it's not zero pod, but let's assume it is zero pod, and let's assume Red Bull, let's assume Red Toto thinks it's zero pod, and everybody's told him, ah, Red Bull have got your zero pod now. It does work after all. You're absolutely right. You sure it's just tables you're going to break? Mm, not sure about that. It'd be a lot more than tables, I think. Um, so. Owen 76, Senna Prost so much better than Verstappen Perez. Oh, well, of course, yeah. I mean, Prost is a much better driver than Sergio Perez. But that's who's who's saying that he wasn't? Not quite sure I understand that one. Um, so, Mohammed Ahmed, what about the Aston Martin car? Yeah, we didn't have enough time to talk about it, really. But where were they? They were... Um, Land Fernando was quickest early on, 33-3. And then they did a lot of work. And then in the afternoon, Lance Stroll got in the car and did a 33-0. So you've got to assume Land Fernando would have done a 32-7 probably, 32-8, which would have put him up with Gasly in the Alpine. Um, don't know. And it's, it's too early to say. Have they got a car that's actually not quicker than a Visa? Can I say that? Or... Have they just been doing a lot of work and set up stuff? I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Excuse me. We'll see over the next two days. Van Balzap says Toto needs to take a helmet Marco backseat. Well, I'm not sure. Helmet Marco takes a backseat, does he? A lot of shouting and screaming still from the Marco seat in the pit wall or in the garage. Um, so Toto, yeah, needs to just wait and see, I suppose. Patrick Lemire again, uh, yeah, all-time beats great one. Yeah, just about that Prost Senna thing. I'm looking on and on, Flash Gordon, Bungle, AI. I'm quite sure what that's all about. I'm sorry if I should be doing it, but it's a bit over my head. Uh, while one of me, Red Bull will dominate, learn the Dutch national anthem. Yeah, well, I think I think you're right. And I mean, if, if it is right, let's just accept it for what it is just sheer brilliance in terms of the technology that red that red bull have created there and the driver who's made the most of it that's simple as that and, and if we like seeing perfection in formula one we should love 2024 but it's not over and if mercedes or ferrari or aston martin or mclaren can put a bit of pressure on red bull from time to time and red bull aren't going to be perfect at every circuit that's that's a given then maybe we've got some things that we can get excited about in terms of close racing. Uh, BT, and just basically following up on that, is the season already over at the front or still too early to tell? Well, 
probably <laughs> probably over. But I think everybody wants to say, oh yeah, you know, let's wait and see. I think you'll see, if you open up all the apps, you know, all the Formula One, and they'll try and keep it as exciting as they possibly can. I mean, you saw I saw one this morning, and it was um, Alexander Albon stop. Was it yeah Albon? Alexander Albon stops out on the circuit! Exclamation mark! <laughs> Some fuel pressure drama. Um, when did that deserve an exclamation mark? I asked myself. Um, let's go for number four. I presume you're not talking about racing numbers here, but championships. Yeah, I think so. Um, so anyway, lots of chatting amongst yourselves. So let's move on to this. Um, Owen76, we're all sad Alonso isn't in the Red Bull challenging Verstappen. Yeah, well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? But we knew that was never going to happen when Red Bull didn't sign him when he left Ferrari. So there was no way, no way it was going to happen. And, and, and at that point, I'm sure it's probably not the case now because Fernando's more mature and he's older. But at that point, Red Bull, like a lot of people in Formula One, felt that Fernando, as quick and as good as he is, could also be quite difficult politically and drive the team apart, as he had done at Ferrari. I mean, Felipe Massa's quite an easygoing guy, but to wind him up to the point where he's not enjoying his Formula One anymore because the team's just driven apart uh, and he's just spent whatever it was, three or four years with Michael, you know, it says... It's a bit of an indictment, really. So, anyway, um, that was that was why he was never going to go to Red Bull. They just didn't want that drama. Pieta van Breda, that Hulk F1 car actually looks good on track. Okay, good. Well, I'm pleased. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm. Let's hear it for Haas. I'm really interested to see how Haas go this year. I hope they have a good year. I really do. I'm very impressed with um, Aeo. Three syllables in that first word, by the way. Four letters, three syllables. Komatsu, whose name also appears on the Williams, but of course it's nothing to do with uh, Komatsu heavy, Komatsu heavy, heavy uh, building movers machinery, which was on the Lotus when Peter Collins was running Team Lotus, when Mika Hakkinen and Johnny Herbert and Julian Bailey were driving. Komatsu was on that. It was a sponsor found by David Hunt. Very sadly missed. Very good man. James's younger brother, youngest brother. Yes, yes, youngest brother. Um, so that's that. Um, Kaz G says, love your content, continuous analysis. Merck looking stable, but still very weak on maximum speed. Okay, good. And overall, pay. I say good that you pointed that out because I hadn't got on top of that today. It's astonishing that these top teams can't find a second Adrian Newey. Or that they didn't sign Adrian Newey when he was available. I think that's just as astonishing as well. I mean, running a team is about having not only the best drivers you can get, but the best engineers you can get. And why didn't Mercedes or Ferrari hire Adrian, I don't know, five years ago? And you say, oh, well, he was happy at Red Bull. He wouldn't have left. Yeah, one billion euros. Maybe he might have or some astronomical sum, which at the time probably would have been outrageous. But when you look back now it would have been a massively great investment. But they didn't do it because they don't think laterally enough. In the same way that the FAA aren't thinking about my suggestion of having renditions of modern classic circuits built in parts of the world where there's the space to build them, i.e. The, the Nevada desert or the uh, desert in near Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, Emirates and, uh, and getting those built because the money's there. Why not get those built? Spa, 
Nürburgring, Suzuka, Brands Hatch. Let's have them all in these places and let's have these classic circuits instead of these, you know, dare I say ridiculous street circuits? Yeah, I think I do. Um, Stephen Seagull says, it surprised me that Scarves doesn't yet understand what's happening with the ducting under the bonnet. When you say the bonnet, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> it's quite a good little term, isn't it? Um, is that an Englishman talking about the hood? I always remember, I don't know if anybody's ever heard it, but there's a brilliant DVD out, or C CD actually, of the 63 American Grand Prix. Sterling Moss doing some commentary, guest commentator. And he says, he says something like, gosh, I can see they got some trouble under the bonnet of Jim Clark's car. <laughs> Good old style. Brilliant. I think he meant the engine cover. Engine cover. Um, but the bonnet. No, but Scarbs is completely unlike a lot of people. He doesn't just sort of say things for the sake of it. He'll only say it if he's sure he knows what he's doing. And if he's not sure of what's going on, that's part of the story as well, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, it's if you don't know, say so. And that's an interesting thing. That kind of brings me back to another point I've often made, which is that they should be doing a behind-the-scenes TV show on Netflix about the engineers and the engineering. And what we don't know, the secrets we don't know, are part of the story. It doesn't all have to be, you know, this is what they're doing, this is definitely that, this is definitely that. It all needs to be the mystique. Build it up. We want to know about the technology, and we want to know what we don't know about the technology, if you see my point. Um, MBM says strict budget cap and a rule book as open as it possibly can be. Yeah, well, that's one way of going about it. The other way of going about it is to have no budget cap and a restriction on materials that can be used and dimensions and let the team sort it out. Me another one. Um, so Seiko Johnny says... Funny how nobody was talking about Newey from 2014 to 2020. Well, of course, I was, and Craig Scarborough was. I don't know if anybody else was, but that, that's exactly the period I'm talking about. If, if you'd made Adrian an offer then for massive money, massive, I'm talking literally a billion euros, I think he would have gone. But they're all too, I don't know, they're all too, can I, no, I wouldn't say stupid. They're all just lacking imagination, and they're all too focused on their own things that they think, are better or are just as good. And it all comes under the heading of inflated egos, actually. Um, any thoughts about Sauber steak? They had a quiet day where everything seemed to be fine, but they didn't stand out in any way. No, um, except the livery. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I probably am still a fan of that livery. So what was Botas? Botas wasn't quick, was he? 30-4-4, and then Joe did 33-8. Well, you know, Oscar Piastri, 33-6. Not bad. Charles Leclerc, 33-2 in the morning. Logan Sargent, 33-8. So I would say on that basis, they've probably gained a bit. <laughs> Again... Can't read too much into day one practice times, testing times, but I think they've probably gained a bit, I suspect. Maybe wrong, but I think they have. Um, what are we talking about now? 
Well, Tangy Hatchy is just replying to that thing. People in the know have been talking about him for the better part of three decades. Well, he's absolutely right, of course. Um, and it's incredible that that Adrian's still there. You know, he was there today in in uh, Bahrain. I think he just flown in from Cape Town or somewhere, and uh, not in team uniform or anything, but in there having a look, see what's going on. Somebody here, some clown, is saying they should put Michael Massey in Christian Horner's job. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's going to happen, isn't it? Um, so, I don't, we won't go down the Christian Horner Road because we don't know what's going on there and we don't want to cast aspersions. We don't want to make judgments about things that we don't know. That's not correct behaviour, I don't think. Um, so, what are we doing here? We'll kind of get to some next stories. Uh... Alonzo the dog, El Plan, yeah, that's good. Quite sure, El Plan, yeah, good. Did Red Bull, this is Antoine Garnelis, did Red Bull follow the same testing program as the others today? In terms of the parameters, tyres, I think they did, yes. In terms of what they did otherwise, no. They got on with it and they just ran and did their mileage, didn't they, where everybody else was faffing around quite a lot. They ran data stuff on the car, the flow biz, they ran everything else, but they just got everything done more efficiently and quicker. So, um, yeah, they. it looks like they might have done, but they didn't. Um, so, Gary T. Hi, Peter. Who's your favorite driver who never won a title? Mine is Francois Sever. Not sure you know about him. Yeah, Francois Sever, I knew pretty well. And uh, lovely guy, great guy very funny guy, massively chain smoker, Goulois, Gitan, so long as it was French and very strong, he smoked it, very good musician, pianist, chatted to him about jazz and other music a lot, and just a wonderful, wonderful guy to hang out with. Um, I would still say Chris Amon is the driver. I mean, he didn't even win a Grand Prix, Chris Amon. He won some non-championship Formula One races, but he'd never won a Grand Prix. And I still think he is one of the fastest, most polished Grand Prix drivers I've ever seen. And it astonishes me how unlucky he was. And it can only be luck. I mean, the 71 Italian Grand Prix, he finally breaks free of the the slipstreaming group, the peloton, if you like, and he's now leading by four or five seconds. They can't get a toe from him. They're about 10 laps to go, whatever. So in relief, he goes to pull off the strip-off visor of his helmet, and the whole visor comes off the helmet, and he doesn't win the race as a result. I mean, things like that happened to Chris. I mean, 68 Canadian Grand Prix, uh, he was just walking away with the race in the Ferrari. That was in the Matra, that Monza race. And uh, still watching Chris at uh, Clermont-Ferrand, 72, in the Matra V12, the sound of that engine around the forest of France on that mountainside, Chris's driving was something I'll never, ever forget. And he, to me, not only did he not win a race, but he didn't win a championship and he deserved to win both. Um, so, so I just, I keep, you know, there's a lot of chat amongst everybody today. That's fine. You can do that. You know, I'm just addressing the stuff that seems to be more for my attention as distinct from uh, other people's attention. So um, 
Michael Skilton says, I always thought the throttle blipping was to keep the turbo spun up. No, no, it wasn't that because if it was, everybody would, everybody would have been doing it. And, and it certainly wasn't that. It was just something that and always did from certainly from Formula Ford. Whenever the first time I heard him in Formula Ford 1600, he did it. Ford 2000, he did it. Formula 3, he did it. And obviously in Formula One, he did it. So it was, yeah, and I talked to him about it. As I said, you know, he, he said it was something he always did. He knew it wasn't a great thing, but it's the only way he could drive and didn't want to change. So that was that. Put that one to rest. Nothing to do with brilliantly understanding how to get throttle lag solved. Because, as I say, you know, if it was that, if that was a solution, you think Prost couldn't have done that? Of course he could have if he needed to. Um, okay. Michael Ozogwin, is it at all possible that all the other teams are sandbagging except Red Bull? I never really understood what sandbagging is. Um, I say, yeah, sandbagging is, it's happened probably about four times in the history of Formula One when the car is so quick that they, they, well, we better not show what we can do until nobody can copy what we're doing and we'll keep it quiet. But I mean, come on, Bahrain Grand Prix next week. So I think everybody's out there doing what they can do um, at the moment. So I don't think the, uh... oh, here's another one. MBM throttle blip also served to control the pitch of the car. What, so you want the car doing <laughs> yeah I mean it did actually affect the pitch I'm sure but it was very small very subtle and and, and I've spoken to Steve Nichols about this he was, he was Ayrton's race engineer and I he says that Ayrton had the same throttle springs as Alan Prost which astounds me and I I'm still slightly doubtful of that I, I, I think he had quite long travel and he had quite a long throttle and the opposite of Jacques Villeneuve, in other words, who basically just liked his throttle to be an on-off switch. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I think that's how it was. So I keep having to sort of go back to the top because the thing keeps freezing. Um, this is Jean-Louis Gaissons. The Le Mans 24-hour holidays holds days on end to inspect each car and every car so as to show that all cars meet the specs required for a 24-hour race what does fi do for a 24 gp series well it is pretty draconian they, they all park firme uh, on the thursday everything's measured weighed and they have as you know they have weight checks weight checks um during random weight checks during qualifying and they have very strict measurements random again after the race and it's disqualification if you're out so i think it's pretty it's a, it's run about as well as you can do it given as you say the logistics of the championship um inverted free solos if you put senna in the second red bull 20 rb20 against max verstappen who wins and MBM says, Verstappen, no doubt. <laughs> well, it'd be a good race, wouldn't it? It'd be a very good race. I don't know. I think there's different areas, aren't they? Do, do we put manual change in there, gear change in there as well? Just to give Max a bit of a, you know, something to work on? Why not? Um, yeah. Wilson Wombat says hi peter do you think senna would have been able to mesh well with the narrow track groove tire era of cars yeah i mean he would have hated it like all the drivers hated it you know all that groove tire thing nobody wanted it 
except Max, and um, you know, I'm glad they got rid of them. But we we've gone through a lot of tire situations recently where the drivers just don't like it, but they have to accept it. So nobody, you know, not much else you can do. Um, so again, having to do all this freezing things, just so many questions. That's very sweet of everybody to be asking so many questions. Thank you. Um, what type of driving style did Adrian Sutil have? Short corner or long corner driver? Yeah, he was quite, he was a bit like Ralph Schumacher. He was a bit edgy, a bit, um, a bit spiky, but he definitely shortened the corner. He wasn't as um, fluid as, say, Giancarlo Fisichella, but he had slightly shorter corners in Giancarlo, and he was quite quick as a result but he was quite prone to error because his inputs are quite spiky. So if you took him out of his comfort zone and he had a bit of understeer or the track was a bit semi-wet or something like that uh, and he was under pressure, he would make mistakes. But he was on his own. He's not bad at all, Sutil. I was thinking about him the other day, oddly enough, and how he was very close mates with Lewis after their Formula 3 careers. And they were quite mate matey in Formula One until Sutil had that drama in Shanghai, I think it was, when he had a bar scuffle with somebody and got arrested. He didn't get arrested, he got fined. And anyway, it was all public and it was very embarrassing for him. And the friendship fell apart. It was rather an odd thing, really. I suppose you have to do that in the public eye, but it would have been nice. I know I'm not going to judge anyone, so it would have been nice for Lewis to put his arm around him. But um, it was a moment when Sutil was on his own. Certainly didn't have any friends helping him, I don't think. Um, Imral Faram Pritom says, against Max, Senna would win every race. Well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the whole Max-Senna thing coming up now, people doing these comparisons. Um, so let's get on with some other stuff. Uh, Nividan Mangalesh says, Andre Estella said they're bringing evolutionary innovation to the car before the launch. My inexperienced eyes couldn't spot anything significant today. What's your take on the car? Well, I can only, again, I only bow to Scarbs, and I did ask him in that interview what he thought about McLaren today and, and had he seen anything more, and he basically said, no, not really. So apart from that, you know, little winglet thing on the side pod that everybody's talking about, it's still quite difficult to see what they've done that's any different. Maybe they've just saved a lot of weight, Scarbs thinks they've made the car easier to drive. I'm quite sure how they've done that. That's the question. We need to discover how they've done that. That would be an interesting thing to know. This is Jean-Louis Gaysons. Um, my thanks for this should make Mercedes front wing a non-issue. So why do we need to play sensationally on the subject at this minute? Well, yeah, this is all about whether that fourth element drama on the Mercedes is, well, design is legal or not legal. And Scarbs is saying initially he thought they'd probably get away with it but now having seen it on the car he's saying maybe it is going to be an issue and i pointed out in that video as you saw that the minute a second team starts sniffing around it and showing signs they're going to run it maybe then the fia will say this is against what we wanted to achieve with the front wing i.e to make it easier to overtake the car in front and because of that we need to outlaw it so that'll be the interesting thing um to see that so where are we going now um 
where does Alonzo end up? Inverted free solo. Well, he could, you know, as I say, we were speculating in the last live stream about if he was offered a sort of plug-in drive at Mercedes for one year alongside George, would he take it on the basis that Mercedes might want to run the great Kimi uh, the following year? And I think I said he might, but I, I don't think he would actually. I think he would, he would say, no, I want a proper deal. Otherwise, forget it. I think that's what he would say. Um, so, so post Captain Aubrey says, Peter, what the heck is going on with Christian Horner? Apologies if you've already answered this. Well, <laughs> I think the answer is sadly, Peter doesn't know any more than you guys. And um, I can't really say any more than that. It just, I mean, even if, even if it is nothing, it's kind of odd that Christian has created a situation where there is even talk about there being something because he's so smooth in the way he runs the team and he's looked after Adrian and he's worked the Red Bull, massaged the Red Bull Association. He's very, very good at that. And so I was talking to Sir Jackie Stewart the other day and he was saying you know, he doesn't know anybody better in Formula One than Christian Horner in those areas. So it's so odd that he would allow even the suspicion of something weird to be um to be alive isn't it so it's it's a strange one we'll just have to see how it develops but thank you very much post captain aubrey for that um another one from michael lawless i assume aero design drives mechanical engine placement but how does that engineering placement but how does that interaction prioritization negotiation work within a team newey being an exception um well, obviously, a lot of the car can be designed by the rule book, and there are certain things that you can't move around. Probably, if you're a customer team in terms of battery location and other main parts of the architecture, but it, that's the art. I mean, you've really—it's it's a simple question you've asked, but it's a very, very good question because if Adrian, if another engineer, not Adrian Newey, said in another team we've got to do more with the channels this is the key to 2024 it's all going to be about the channels and what what happens to the air when it hits the beam wing so in order to do that we've really got to rethink the way we place the intercoolers the size of the intercoolers we might want to have two intercoolers where before we only have one we want to move them around i want to have ducks here ducks there and i'm going to really really maximize the space in the car then you'd run up against a lot of other barriers of in the engineering department about who do the radiator design and all the fittings and the installation and in the chassis department a cost cost of doing that and b whether or not it was feasible to do in order to create the solution that you want with the channels and the beauty of the adrian newey situation is that when he says that he's already thought through the complications of the intercoolers and the cooler and the duct here and the duct there and knows exactly how it's going to work. He has an overall feel for the design of the car. So I think it's quite easy for a lot of people to perceive Adrian as the aerodynamicist and he's the guy that then has to convince maybe the chassis designer that this is what they have to do with the with the architecture. But it isn't that way. Adrian can des designs the whole car and he has a lot of people working for him in a number of departments all great people, all of them very innovative, possibly more innovative than Adrian. But Adrian is the guy with the car in his head 
and what is feasible and what isn't and what and how big a plus point can he make about this aerodynamic improvement that he wants how important is it and he's the guy that weighs that up and I don't think there's anybody else in Formula One that can do that job that way I really don't and that's and people say oh well you know he's getting a bit old and there's got to be some other Adrians out there who can go into a wind tunnel and do the same it's not just about that it's about the overall package as you correctly point out in that question or imply in that question um Let's have a look at another question. Ah, okay. MBM, 1983 Brabham livery. Oh, I thought you were going to say 1970 when they went to turquoise, which was pretty cool. 83? I don't know. can't remember that. Yeah, maybe. Didn't really notice it. 83 Brabham. Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Jordan was yellow with Benson. Yeah, we know that. Um, Is it just me or is the black more shiny this year? I noticed the McLaren Haas have a really nice black. I'm not going to admit to liking the Sauber. <laughs> it's like the Sauber and Alpine, lots of lots of laughs, but they look better than I thought. Okay, well, that's, you know, at least you're giving it some thought and at least you're uh, giving some feedback to all these livery designers who no doubt have been paid a fortune to come up with these liveries. Um, yeah, I don't know about the black. Maybe. Maybe it's the lights there. Maybe. Um, HR. I'm convinced Alonso could take the fight to Lewis and Verstappen if he got hold of the Mercedes, but also Aston Martin when they bring in the Honda engine. Okay, maybe. Um, Glenn says, Peter, these questions are for you. Michael, Ferrari, red. <laughs> We're talking about colours now, yeah, obviously. Um, so that's good. It was pretty nice, wasn't it? The whole Michael thing. It looked good when he had a red helmet, actually. And, when my, and the, with the blue, the blue stars, that always looked pretty good, I thought. Um, Invest and Rest says, I'm surprised no one uses Vanta Black on the floor. It would hide all the edges in design. Yeah, and, and, and in that picture of the Red Bull uh, Shark inlet and the vertical slot, it's amazing how rough and unfinished it, it looks, the carbon there, isn't it? But I suppose, you know, anybody's into having a finished uh, edge for the air to flow perfectly. It's Adrian Newey. So if that's what it is, that's what it is. Um, right. Uh, hi. Would Alonso, this is HR again, would Alonso best bet be on an Aston Martin, Honda or Mercedes works team in 25, given that Aston Martin wind tunnel would be ready come mid-season uh, so you think that the reason Aston aren't there right now is because they don't have their own wind tunnel maybe um, we'll see on that one I as I say for me and uh, Fernando seems to be into having longevity now rather than just sitting in a car and I can't imagine Mercedes would offer him more than a one-year deal because they've got everybody you know everybody there's raving about this Kimi the great Kimi so um Kimmy Mark II, I don't know, whatever. Um, you, you, you can notice a, a slight scepticism in my voice, probably. Only because when everybody's going down a trending hashtag area of 
which driver they rate. I tend to go in the opposite direction. I think, well, he's got enough people to look after him and to tell him how great he is. I'll go and find somebody else. So that's, um, and on that subject, and that's, and I know I'm going to mispronounce his name now, but on that subject, I was talking to Rob Wilson just two days ago, yesterday actually, and I said, been doing any work with any interesting drivers recently? And he said, oh, he said, there's a guy called, um, and this is where I'm going to get his name right, Aubrey Cordiel, I think it's something like that, a Belgian driver in Formula 2. He's, he said, I've been doing quite a lot with him, and he's not bad at all. Really nice guy, very, very cool guy. And uh, he's not bad. So I thought, wow, okay, I'll start watching him in Formula 2. So there you know, he's been doing stuff with Rob Wilson, so he's got to have half a brain, hasn't he? Well, a full brain, actually. Chippo Mombi says... Any predictions for this year's championship? Nah. Well, am I allowed to say Max Verstappen, Red Bull or not? If, I, if I've got to say somebody other than Max, I would say, okay, let's do predictions. It's be a good one. Who's going to win the, assuming you cannot say Max Verstappen, Red Bull, who's going to be world champion in 2024? <laughs> uh, I'd give that to old Charles Leclerc, I think. Um, so Mallory Talman says that's a great name um, there's murkish bits but the low frontal cross section is just not here pods are still prominent to keep the wake off the rears well you know what you're talking about there mate I don't very good um, Perez and who else didn't drive today well I think you'll find Lewis didn't drive did he no so it was just the Red Bull and Mercedes just ran the number one drivers today. Oh, I've made that joke once already. Um, only because it'll be interesting, won't it? You know, how Lewis fits in at Mercedes this year. Alonso's best shot is Monaco again, where skill matters, not having the best car on team. Yeah. I, I hope, I don't doubt that Fernando has the skill. I'm just wondering whether or not it's only skill at Monaco. It seems to be where you qualify. And sometimes you can have a lot of skill and get traffic on your lap and then you're out. You don't even make Q3. So, and then you qualify 10th, forget it, ain't going to happen. So it, it's not a, not like 1959, uh, sadly, or 61 even. It's 2024. Um, 59 was Jack Brabham's first win. Yeah, I think it was his first Formula One win. And from, if I remember rightly, he had a, a believable, he had a slight radiator leak in the front of the Cooper. And he had um, very, very hot football area. And when, they, when he got out of the car, it was like third degree burns on his feet. But he kept going. All this stuff about, you know, got to have ducks for the drivers because of what happened in Riyadh last year. Poor drivers, going to get too hot. I mean, this guy had third degree burns and he won the Grand Prix. I'm not saying that they're wusses now, but, you know, they are racing drivers. And 61, of course, was all about, that really was about skill. In the days when the cars were small, you could overtake quite easily. Sterling won that race, beating the much more powerful Ferraris just by perfect positioning when he was lapping back markers and just lapping the back marker at exactly the right moment so that the Richie Ginther or Phil Hill, whoever it was, challenging him at the time in the Ferrari had to back off and Sterling could get away a little bit. But when they were on free road, they always caught him. So inverted free solo says, that Merck looked bouncy on the straights today. Yeah, well, not a good sign, is it? Merck looked quite unstable. Lots of lockups. So there you go. Yeah, you guys are very good at what you're noticing very good um so 
No. Will I do an analysis of long fuel runs on different compounds? Um, I actually got, I'm really busy at the moment doing a lot of work on the upcoming exhibitions. So I'm squeezing in this live stream and a few other videos in between all that. So the answer is no. I will obviously, when we get to the Grand Prix and I'll look at fuel runs in FP2 or FP3, but for, for testing all day, no, I'm sorry. I've got too many other things I've got to do right now. Um, so all talking about Mercedes not looking too good. Um, yeah, Aaron White says, do you think that the cost cap is stifling teams being able to catch up on performance? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's only going to be the teams that have the money anyway that spend it. And as I've said before, as I've said many times, it would have been great last year to have seen Mercedes or Ferrari bringing out a, a B version of their cars or even a C version of their cars for Monza or whatever, uh, to based on what they've learned and how to take the race to Red Bull. But we don't get that anymore because of the cost cap. And, and that, that was always a big thing in Formula One, in my view. And, and it's a shame that that's been taken away. And I don't think, I think there's still so many areas where we're spending money absurdly. Motorhomes being a very good example. But, and driver retainers not being in the cost cap. I mean, what's that all about? I'm not saying they should be, but they're not. So it just makes nonsense of the cost cap, doesn't it? So you've got Ferrari in 2025 spending more on their two drivers than they're able to spend on the entire build of the car and the running of the race team. <laughs> Just doesn't make sense to me. Um, Joe Summit says, why are everyone's side pod inlets so huge? Like Mercedes had tiny intakes and then just open them up when they change concepts. Well, if you look at the ones of the pictures in this one of the, of the Red Bull inlets, they're not exactly big. You've got the, t the vertical slot and you've got the shark thing and that's it. So I think you've got to be careful about whether you're looking at the shape of the pod and what's going on underneath the pod and, and assuming that's the inlet and what actually is the inlet to the radiators and so forth. It's amazing, actually, how small the inlets are, I think. Um, was Hamilton the reason Mercedes abandoned the zero pod design? <laughs> Well, I don't, I doubt it because I'm sure Lewis was saying after race two, 2022, get rid of this thing. But, you know, they ran it all last year as well. So they weren't listening to him, were they? Mm. I've got to smell my Pergamino coffee again. Mm. Is there anything nicer? Well, maybe newly mown grass. I was going to say, is there anything nicer than freshly brewed coffee beans? Newly mown grass, not bad. Um, ben4810, Peter, I'm finding the Sky F1 production old, tired, and really painful to watch. Are the teams in Formula 1 happy with how Sky present and broadcast the sport? I don't know. I never watch it, so I can't really comment. But um, I can tell you that I'm, I feel the same way about the Sky's coverage of golf, that's for sure. Um, just talk about people, prima donnas all the time, just pressing opinions that, I'm usually stating the obvious. So, yeah, I don't know. I can't really comment about that other than to say I don't watch it because um, I'm lucky enough to have a different feed that I can watch. And um, I've never been... I mean, I did work for Sky for a bit, but equally I've written for the Sunday Times and the Times newspaper and, and wasn't good. wasn't a great experience for me either. So that whole Murdoch thing was not my scene at all. Um, does anyone else, this is inverted free cell, does anyone else agree that there should be a cost cap, but the team should be allowed to use any tech they want as long as they can do it under the cap? 
Well, yeah, I think quite a lot of people, I think Adrian Newey agrees with that. I think you have to add there, providing you've got all the safety parameters on the car that you want to have in terms of the, the, the safety structures, the survival cell, the wheel tethers, the whole thing. Providing you've got all that and providing you've got a cost cap and providing you've got dimensions because you don't want the cars becoming absurdly long, absurdly wide, absurdly wide, then I think most people would like that. And I'm pretty sure Adrian would like that. I suppose you'd want to say open wheels, would you? I don't know. You look back, I was looking at pictures the other day of Fangio in the in the streamliner Mercedes on the banking at Monza in 54. <sighs> Unbelievable. I mean, think how quick that streamliner Mercedes was and driving it on the bumps of that banking. What do we all think about the streamliner Mercedes? Was it a Grand Prix car? Yeah, central seat, should be. Was Ferrari pleased with the Tardeg Extreme 384? Probably not, I would think. I think they. I don't think anybody's ever very pleased with the Tardeg these days. I mean, you can only relate it to other teams when it's the Grand Prix weekend. In, the, in testing, I'm sure the drivers just feel that they, you know, I want more grip for longer. I'm not, I'm not saying that to be fatuous. I'm saying that because that is the nature of the Pirellis we have today. They're not fun to drive on for racing drivers that just want to go out and race and do endless laps. But how they how Ferrari compare on tyre deg with Red Bull, with Mercedes, we'll really only know when we get to the Grand Prix weekend next week. Um, so, Jose Summit. Oh, don't you have F1 TV? I guess that's about the Sky thing. No, I don't, he presumably doesn't. Um, Ryan D, who do you see coming out on top at McLaren, Lando or Oscar? Yeah, very, very good question. Depends what you mean by on top. I suspect given his experience, given his position in the team, his knowledge of the team and who he is and how he drives, I suspect Lando will have more points at the end of the year. But whether that means he's come out on top is another matter because I think Oscar is capable of being quicker and has a more efficient, slightly more efficient driving style. He just needs to have more road dust and he may not score the points that Lando will score. He may not have as many podium, but I think he's going to be, there'll be a number of occasions when he's giving Lando a hard time to the point where we think mm, Oscar is good. It'll be like last year, but with more I think he is good but in terms of points in the year I suspect Lando Peter don't you think Formula One should bring back refueling while keeping that overall 105 kilometer limit for Sunday's race so the cars will be more agile maybe they can go towards V8s under the fuel limit yeah but it's that's not the point is it the point is that we had V8s and they were incredibly reliable and then we went to regenerative engines that we have today that was what 2014 and uh, they were three times the price and that's the engine we have so we can't just run V8s again it'll never happen and we're going to go in 2026 we're going to go to 50% electrification so that's not going to happen either um, so none of that's going to happen and I don't think they'll bring back refueling because I think it's too dangerous in any way a poor advertisement for Formula One if we're trying to show the world how much how efficient the thermal efficiency of the engine is and how little fuel we use, how efficiently we use the fuel. They're not going to want to see great big lines of fuel going out and fuel slopping all over the place if something goes wrong. So I don't think that'll ever happen again, to be honest. Mm. 
Chippo Mumbi says again, hi Peter, I know it's far-fetched, but do you think Red Bull is teasing Mercedes with its zero pod design? I wouldn't put it past Horner to be that petty. Well, it's not zero pod, as, as Scarbs has now clearly said. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a, as I say, if, if, if Red Bull have made Mercedes think it's a zero pod design, then they've, you know, yeah, they've wound them up. But I don't think they went into that thinking, let's do a wind up. I don't think it was that at all. Um, Khalid Mahmoud says, what do you think about the Ferrari? Are they capable to challenge Red Bull? Well, as Craig Scarborough said in the video, slightly weird that they've still got the pull rod rear. They've still got quite a lot of space they could be using if they had a more efficient back end layout. And the suggestion is they are going to go that way with a major update at some point, maybe around Imola or something like that. But as Scub says, you know, you, you want to hit the ground running. You don't want to you don't want to go into the season knowing you've got the upgrade coming in three months' time. So that's not a good thing. But overall, I think they're a bit nearer Red Bull than they were this time last year. And there is an argument for saying that they finished the year quite well in terms of consistency and in terms of having a nice sweet spot that they could find for the drivers to manage the tyres. And they didn't want to touch too much of that. They wanted to keep that going through into 24 with some other updates. So I think that's where they're at. It's potentially where they're at. And whether they do these big upgrades, like different rear end, will kind of depend how the first few races go, I guess. Do you think Max would actually leave after 2028? Leave Red Bull or leave Formula One? This is a thank you very much for that, Brandon, a super chat. Um... If you mean Formula One, I think he might. Yeah, I mean, he's a racing driver that loves competing. And there will be a point where he'll want to do some other racing, other forms of racing, I suspect. Hypercars, NASCAR, Indy, whatever it is. He, he'll, be, he'll love it. He'll, for sure he loves it all. And he may by then think, yeah, I've had enough of all this. I'm going to go and do that. But equally, he may not. He may think, I love this. I never want to stop. I don't know. Um, probably the latter, I suspect. <laughs> Um, okay, Fran Seven says, "If if Racing Bulls close the one four, I will literally skip this year." Well, sad to see you go, Fran Seven. Stick with it. As I say, you know, when Tiger Woods was winning all those golf tournaments by margins of ten shots, the crowds didn't go away. They wanted to watch perfection at work. So stick around and watch perfection at work. Isn't that a good thing too? Michael says, I am Dutch, but the national anthem is horrible. Ah, oh, sorry to hear that. Um, so Mallory is confirming what I'm saying. Use your eyes. It's not a zero pod. They're quite prominent, like everyone else's, So for keeping the wake up board. And there's a lot inside them. So, yeah, exactly. Um, Aditya Srinivasan. I, do, I was asked this question. What's the smart move for science? Mercedes, Red Bull, Audi. I was asked this question by Cameron uh, in an interview a couple of days ago. But he, he, he asked it slightly differently. He said, if I was Carlos Sainz's manager, what would I be trying to arrange for Carlos? And my answer was Audi for sure. Great brand. And I'd try to have a long, long, long term deal with Audi where he's associated with Audi for the next 50 years. Uh, long after he retires from racing and his future is with Audi. And it's a small, it's a new team that he can grow organically with and grow with them and that's a wonderful thing if he goes to mercedes or red bull he's always going to be up against either george or max and that's okay a great teams great cars but 
you know, for, for Carlos Sainz, it's better for him to be in an Audi rather than have to race those two guys in equal cars. That's all I'm saying. Obviously, if he gets a firm offer from either Mercedes or Red Bull, he shouldn't hesitate because they're great race teams, great cars, and he should go there. But if it was down to me and I was managing him, I'd push like crazy to get him in the Audi. Um, so, what Hiteshi Aurora, what Peter said exactly happened 10 years ago. Not sure what that was, but anyway, I hope I was right. Um, Dithmar, what great sponsorship deals did you land at your time at Williams? Any interesting anecdotes? Um, I got I, one of the companies I worked with was called Sira, S I R A, a nice Italian radiator company, which we got uh, in 87 with yeah 87 and I, I most of the sponsorship was in place when I joined the team back end of 84 as sponsorship manager so I was lucky to join a team where we had contracts with Canon Mobile and ICI Fibers as the three key companies Denim also um, but my job actually and the first thing Frank said to me was the car looks like a dog's dinner you remember it was that green and white car in 84 the fw09 and he said come up with a livery that we you know that combines all these different colors and combination we have so actually i designed the livery of that 85 car through to well through to i don't know for at least four years we stuck with it with the blue mobile stripe down the middle the pegasus at exactly the right angle the ICI fibers at the top and the cannon at the bottom exactly in the right position for the the wording everything had to be very precise and so that was good. And then I got all the clothing done around that as well. So, yeah, I'm not sure Patrick Head ever liked the... Uh, I think he quite liked the colour scheme. But I don't think he ever liked the clothing. Um, and it was quite a job to get him to wear any of it. Or Frank, for that matter. Frank had a thing about never wearing... If he, if he wore a cap, it had to be a dark colour. He, he would never wear a white cap. But the worst thing was the... was <laughs> behind my back, uh, as he often did... Um, Frank had agreed with Honda that his two drivers, our two drivers, Nelson and Nigel, would wear a Honda cap on the podium if they were in the top three. But simultaneously, of course, like everybody else, he had signed a contract with Goodyear to say that we would wear Goodyear caps on the podium. So one of my jobs was to make sure that there was no aggravation about this. And there was a guy called Yoshinobu Noguchi, who was Honda's sort of I wouldn't say he was Mr. Fix-It, but he was certainly hovering around a lot. And he used to get very wound up. And he used to be, if we're winning, if we're on the podium, especially if we'd won, he'd be absolutely right at the front of the podium with the Honda caps like this. And there'd be Nigel and Nelson with the, with the Goodyear caps. And he'd be, and he'd, Peter, Peter, Honda cap, Honda cap. And I'd be saying, oh, yeah, one second. Yeah. And, you know, we got to the point, ridiculous thing, when Nelson and Nigel would sometimes put the Honda cap on top of the Goodyear cap. And Frank would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's go down to Park Ferme and see what's going on with the uh, inspection of the cars and <laughs> get away from it as quickly as possible. I mean, Frank wasn't the only guy like that. I mean, Colin Chapman was pretty good at signing two deals for the same space on the car and getting getting twice the money for one space um it was pretty much what everybody did in those days and let somebody like Windsor sort it all out so Noguchi and I had our moments that is for sure um so 
Patrick C. Key's putting everything into perspective, CK, and he says there's too much crying already after the first day of testing. I think this is for the Mercedes people who are hoping that they're going to go out and blow everybody off. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Um, I think the gap will be close, says NJO, uh, especially in qualifying trim. Race, the Red Bull will be supreme. Peter Thomas, I like seeing perfection when others are fairly close to perfect also. Otherwise, it's admirable but boring. Well, yeah, but, you know, okay, explain to me why so many people watch golf when Tiger was winning by all these things. That's one thing I never really understood. I mean, I understand it because I, I'm quite happy to watch Charles Leclerc driving around on his own or Max on his own or Lewis. I just love watching them drive. But um, a lot of people don't. Um, um, so we had that. We're just going through other ones. Oh, here we go. Kevin Joel says, maybe the Red Bull will suffer cooling like the Merck did in 2020 when it was behind the others. Maybe. They've got a lot of radiator stuff going on there, haven't they? So, And if they're going to have cooling problems, they're going to show up in these first few races. So that's it. Maybe that's why Adrian's there, looking there, temperature, measuring everything. Um, okay, Max is going to win five championships. Uh, Robert D'Amico, I've missed this in your past live streams, but always wanted to know your opinion of Jacques Villeneuve as a driver. Yeah, very, very good. Very good. I mean, I saw him at Indy. I saw him win Indy, actually, that year. Scott Goodyear was incredibly unlucky, though, I've got to say. Um, saw him in Formula Atlantic. I never saw him in Formula 3 because he was mainly in Japan. But I remember his mum ringing me once and saying, look, Peter, Jacques in London right now, will you please take him to lunch and sit him down and tell him that he's got to start, you know, taking life seriously and getting on with it because he can do very well. But at the moment, he's just too much extracurricular activity. So I did. <laughs> did have no impression whatsoever. Um, but yeah, no, he was very polished, very good. I would say Lando Norris style of driver, polished, you know, shortish corners, but not, it could have been shorter, but very good racecraft, good at thinking through the race, very few errors in race situations. And um, yeah, I mean, Pole in his first Grand Prix, what can you say? In, in Melbourne, just brilliant. Had a good engineer, Jock Clear, who helped him a lot that year, I think. And then he was swayed by too much money and fame and Craig Pollock and they went off the track off the rails it's a shame because if he'd stayed at Williams I think he could have been he possibly could have won a second championship in the BMW years Glenn love your podcast and everything learned a lot got the real knowledge about Formula One thank you much thank you very much for educating us love from Sri Lanka that's very kind Glenn thank you very much indeed kind of you to say so it means a lot um Paul Lavely says, when Red Bull get a Ford powertrain, they will be has-beens. Why do you think it's going to be a Ford powertrain? It's going to be a Red Bull powertrain, just as this is a Red Bull powertrain, in addition to having the Honda input. So it's going to be a Red Bull powertrain with some Ford input, possibly on the electric side, which they're probably quite good at these days, I suspect. Um, they've done a lot of electric developments, haven't they, on their road cars and stuff. They kind of know what they're doing. Um, so it'll still be the still be a Honda technology power unit in that car. So I'm afraid I don't agree with you there. Um, 
Demiscu, will we see Palou close to Formula One drive again? Well, I did say in that last live stream, didn't I? I would love to see Oscar Piastri in the second Mercedes alongside George long term. And I'd love to see Alex Palou in the McLaren alongside Lando. I think that'd be a great thing. I don't think it'll happen, but um, you'd say, oh, well, Piastri's on a long term contract to McLaren. But money talks and and if Mercedes no, they're not desperate but they do need somebody really good and I think Piastri would be really good in that Mercedes and whatever it takes to pay Zach Brown for that they should do it and then pay Oscar obviously and equally some of McLaren don't have a really good guy to put in the car and I think Palou is really good I really do and when I think of him I think of my mate Adrian Campos sadly passed away but his son doing a great job now running the team and he was the guy that discovered Alex Palou just up the road here in Valencia so yeah mm, a couple of questions coming along twice now so I'm just having to read them um, Havinda Sunila question Peter how much of what's happening at Horner is internal backstabbing at Red Bull I don't know I mean there's lots of lots of people out there opinionated saying what they think is going on I don't want to join all that I mean there was one journalist saying oh well you know when they were asked about Horner Sergio Perez was really supportive but Max wasn't very supportive but yeah, I think you're reading into far too much there Max doesn't say much anyway and Max said yeah yeah you know Christian's a great guy um, we got all confidence we're all behind him um, and and if I was Christian and, and as I said to, in the interview with Cameron the other day, if I was Christian, I'd get Max to be the sort of guy that really works closely with the Austrian Red Bull division and keeps them really happy. And whilst Christian schmoozes the, the Thai connection and keep Red Bull happy from both ends. And that's why I think, as well, we know that Alex Albon has been offered this long-term contract at Red Bull. I don't know if he's taken it or not, but I think he has. And um, that would fit in with wanting to keep the Thai connection happy at Red Bull, as well as having a good driver in the other car. I mean, Alex is very good. And to go back to Red Bull would be great for him. And uh, they are 51% shareholders of Thai, so they shouldn't be um, ignored, of course. So, inverted free solo says, Palu could definitely hang in, but he's locked in Ganassi now. Yeah, he is locked in in the same way that Piastri is locked in at McLaren, but money talks, so, you know, it could happen. Gameborg, oh, it's not the same Komatsu. I saw a digger recently of that brand. Yeah, it is the same. It is that brand. The Komatsu uh, Ayayo, who is... The team principal of Haas is no relation, I don't think, to the Komatsu on the car. But it's the same logo, looks same font and everything that was on the Lotus when it definitely was earth-moving equipment in the, whatever it was, you know, in the Mika Hakkinen Lotus era. There you go. Komatsu supplied and helped on the hydraulics of the active ride car on the team Lotus cars. Really? Cool. Um... What are your thoughts on Brundle as a driver and commentator? Was well, a driver, very, very high regard for Martin as a driver. Formula 3, saloon cars, um, Formula 1, very polished. Should have won a race or two, I think. Um, very quick. Really, really polished. I mean, I would say he was at least as good as Lando Norris, that sort of standard, and very, very... Uh, compliant in the car very good sadly I never get to hear him talk so I can't comment on that one I don't watch whatever TV channel he's on 
Um, Brett Walker says, long time watcher from your speed TV days. Can you see a rule where active aero car will be like a pencil on straights and wings would pop out on the curves or too costly? You mean like the old Chaparral? Indeed, like the old Formula One cars. In 1969, beginning of 69, that's exactly what they were doing. They were having, they had a, a lever in the cockpit and they could actually alter the, the position of the, the angle of the wing on the, on the struts. <laughs> yeah, well, that'll never happen. It comes under the heading of movable aerodynamic devices. And that's where that whole movable aerodynamic device thing started. And it also included the fan that Gordon Murray put on the Brabham in 75, which created suction. And also, um, I suppose also then they'd, they'd also realized that that was the chaparral thing. That's where they'll say they've had movable aerodynamic devices, even in Can-Am. And... Um, but we, we had all those adjustable wings. They had adjustable wings on the Mercs in, what, 55? They had the air brake thing, didn't they? So, yeah, it'll never happen again, that. I think, if, you know, all this, all these rules, let's have the budget cap and then just do whatever you want within the parameter of the safety. I think you're going to have to have a lot of things like, you know, no movable aerodynamic devices. And if you could, you'd ban aerodynamics altogether. Almost impossible to do, of course, because when a car's moving and the air's flowing, you've got aerodynamics in some, for, some form or another. But uh, it'll never happen again. But we've had those wings before. Yeah. Um, Aditya Srinivasan, MT, do you rate Vettel at his peak as good as Lewis, Max or Charles? Was he the short corner driver you like? No, he wasn't. To me, he was never a short corner driver. Well, he was going in, but he wasn't coming out. He was just a V driver. He used to break in a straight line, very like Jean Alesi at an angle, which he was really good at. And then he had a very slow rotation, so slow speed rotation, needs a very good back end for that. And then he'd get on the power again. Um, but it wasn't a very long exit straight it was just a long extended straight into the corner and I think that was Vettel's failing and, and that's why he got beaten in that last year against Ricardo at Red Bull because they, the back end didn't have as much grip as it had had and he took that to Ferrari and it didn't really didn't really excel at Ferrari as a result and that was his thing and it, providing he had a brilliant back end that style of driving is very good great car control very very quick at what he did I mean I'm not saying that he, his judgment was absolutely superb I'm not saying he wasn't absolutely the best at what he did I'd say at least as good as Jean Alesi in that respect Jacques Lafitte was another that drove like that and I'd say Alesi at his best was probably slightly quicker than Jacques but Jacques was really good too but they're the three great V drivers of all time in my opinion Jacques Lafitte Jean Alesi and Sebastian Vettel and, and then there's a lot of other drivers, but a long way behind those three. And and don't forget Vettel. I mean, he was absolutely superb, wasn't he, when he won that race in the wet in uh, in the Toro Rosso in, at Monza. Really great driver. I mean, that was all about touch and feel and about grip and having a good car and, and getting the best from it. But Sebastian Bourdais wasn't bad that day either. I think he finished fourth or fifth, didn't he, in, that, in the same team, in the same car. So it was a good car that day. But Vettel was good. I remember watching Vettel. I was with Matthew Marsh, actually, my buddy, um, who at that point lived in Hong Kong. He now is based in Singapore. And we were at the Japanese Grand Prix in the year when Vettel was driving the third BMW on Fridays 
in the days when we had Friday drivers who could do what they wanted on a Friday, you know, not just selected one race a year. And we were watching him through the Degnas, into, the, into Degna 1. And he had this moment, he came in a bit too quick, where normally it's an understeery thing, and the back end just did that. And his car control and his balance was just beautiful to watch. And we looked at one another and thought, wow, Vettel, you know, just this guy's got it. But he only really had it in that V form. That's the thing. He had great car control. I and mean, that goes without saying, but as most of them do, actually. But he had great car control. But he was this V driver. He got into this whole V driver thing and, and he just never really got out of it, as far as I could see and still see. Well, the last year at Aston, good example. Um, speaking of great drivers, why be so cynical of great drivers assuming them to be supremely egotistical? I wasn't. I was actually referring. If you're referring to me, um, I was saying that. Oh, hang on. To the point where you can't get the most from a driver if the guy in the next seat isn't a subservient. Oh, I see what you mean. Um, you're talking about number one, number two. Well, it's not that. It's I love to see two good number one drivers against one another. I've just always believed that, and I'm and it's because I was very close to Carlos and and I know what happened at Williams when he replaced Clay Regazzoni. And it's very simple. You know, if you've got a very quick driver in the other car, he will take points from the so-called number one driver. And, and so it's not a question of ego. It's not a question of anything else. It's just a question of logic that if a driver wants to win a driver's championship and a team wants the driver to win the driver's championship, you cannot assume that it will be anything but a close fight right till the end of the season. If you don't assume that, then you... You shouldn't be in racing in the first place. It may not be, but you've got to assume that. And if it is, he's going to need every point, every point he can get in order to win that title. And one point could define it. And if that point actually goes to the teammate, because he's beaten the number one driver that day, finished ahead of him, what's the, you know that is there's just no logic to that. And I've never understood why people think that you should always have the two best drivers you should get. I don't agree with that philosophy. A lot of people disagree with me, but that's what I think. I think there's another um, super chat here. Uh, Nawe, okay, Nawe Ottoman Tani. Greetings from Geneva, Switzerland. Thanks so much for your content, celebrating the love of Formula One. No sensationalism, history and technology, rare in Formula One content. Ah, oh, thank you very much, Noel. I, hope you, I was hoping you were going to get to a question then and say, so tell me, blah, blah, blah. Who was better, Jean Barrow or Marston Gregory? Um, so, um, this is a bit unfair. Joseph DeMarco, they just copy Red Bull. Ferrari, you're an embarrassment. Well, they haven't. The whole point is they haven't copied the back end of the Red Bull. They're sticking out and doing their own thing. So give them credit for believing in their own philosophy and doing their own thing. That's what I see it. You know, A lot of people say, why aren't they doing a Red Bull copy at the back? Um, Ferrari tried many times. Dacia, Pitta, <laughs> what are your thoughts in Aston Martini this year? Well, it'd be nice if Martini were back in racing again, wouldn't they? I always liked the old Martini stripes. Although I was more of a Cinzano guy because Carlos was sponsored by Cinzano. At a time when Martini were around, I always thought, yeah, Cinzano. A big opposition, you know, and... Um, so, but Martini, no doubt the stripes and the whole silver thing, pretty good. Um, 
So here's a good question. David Joe Klotz. Hello, Mr. Windsor. Why did McLaren not try? Anyway, sorry to go back to that Aston Martin one. I've lost the question now. But um, I think they'll go all right, won't they? They'll do pretty well. As Scarb says, new wind tunnel. No, somebody else said on here, new wind tunnel coming in, new facilities, lots of lots of scope, money, everything, future. Oh, it's all the whole stroll thing. It's all a bit annoying now, isn't it? I mean, I love Alon Alonso. Um, it's just kind of difficult, that thing. Anyway, um, moving on. Hello, Mr. Windsor. Why did McLaren not try to sign Ronnie for 76? Because um, oh, he'd already signed for March and James was the only... They wanted Jackie X, I think, didn't they? Yeah, they did want X and they couldn't get him either because he'd signed for Williams, I think it was. Or, yeah, and... Uh, the only driver available really was James and John Hogan was saying well there you go you know he's the guy I've told I've been telling you all the time Marlborough that is we've got to have James Hunt and so literally it was right at the end of the year after Emerson had decided to go to Kopasuka that they signed James and everyone thought wow you know how's that going to go when he put the car on the pole for his first race with McLaren in Brazil Interlagos not an easy circuit on which to do that either so that kind of quietened everybody down and then we all know what happened for the rest of the 76 season so yeah Ronnie I think they would have gone for Ronnie had he been available it was so late that in the year that was the problem they none of these guys were available CJ Jim I wonder what Colin Chapman would think about a Lotus in space Tesla Roadster <laughs> well if you're thinking would Colin Chapman love the whole space um, space technology that we have now I think the answer is yes very much so I mean he was totally into as we all were in the Formula 1 uh, Apollo, Gemini, Mercury well not Mercury but certainly Apollo era and Gemini to some extent um, era we all loved it and all the astronauts and all the engineers at NASA loved and all the other places North American and all the other they all loved Formula 1 so it was a wonderful crossover thing and Today, yeah, I'm sure Colin would be fascinated and he'd be drawing, as we speak, doing this live stream, he'd be sketching on the back of an envelope some way of, of, uh, of a satellite disbursement in space that blows Elon Musk out of the water, I would imagine. Um, yeah, Mallory Tarman talking about Ayrton with his throttle booping. I heard it was a go-kart habit that never left. Absolutely right. Um, inverted free solo Leclerc has won I think it was to not win a race not season champ um, probably probably agreeing with me when I said if it's not Verstappen who can be world champion this year uh, Domes explain throttle on while braking to settle rear attitude at turn in uh, throttle on while braking to settle yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could, uh, you could certainly look at the dynamics of the rear end of the car with throttle on. But when you're driving the race car and you're Max Verstappen and you're just extending the straight as much as you can before you get to the the dreaded rotation point, which is the the place of least possible downside actually to rotate the car all you're thinking about is 
maintaining that speed as you're slightly curving the car towards the rotation point and you're already feeling where the rotation point's going to be and you're feeling exactly how much you're going to have to slow the car down and exactly how much understeer the car feels as if it's going to develop and at that moment you're trading off brake against steering load and when I say trading off, I don't necessarily mean coming out of the brakes. I mean braking as well as, high, as whatever speed you need to do down to the rotation point. And at that moment, then you, you then all bets are off and you rotate the car. So he's not thinking, oh, you know, throttle on. I'm helping the back end of the car or whatever it is. He, his moment of balancing the car is the rate at which he comes out of the brake pedal pressure against the steering that he has to load up into the car at this some point and, and inevitably there's going to be understeer at that point so the car's going to tend towards understeer and he and he's controlling that understeer with the release of the brake pedal pressure against the steering load he's balancing it that way with the footwork and that's that's what he's doing I mean, as I say, an engineer could look at all the telemetry and say, oh, wow, you know, because he's got the throttle on for longer, he's definitely got more grip at the rear, whatever it is, compared with Perez. But that wouldn't be something that, that Max would be thinking about. And I say that because it's not only Max that drives that way. It's a lot of great drivers have driven and do drive that way. And none of them think beyond the obvious things of what they have to do and feel. They're not thinking of what effect it actually has on the ride height or whatever. Those things are for engineers. Which is probably what, I'm not sure that's what you really want to talk about, but um, I think there's another super chat here. Oh, no, it's the same one. Sorry. Okay, another one. Um, yeah, John Corboy, Chris Aim, another awesome Kiwi. Absolutely, yeah, I mentioned him as a driver that should have won not only Grand Prix, but also a World Championship or two. Um, why, in your opinion... Did Carlos Reutemann never become world champion? Well, he did, didn't he? 81? Oh, no, that's right. They took the South African Grand Prix away from him three months after he won it and gave it to the bloke who eventually won the championship. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it didn't give it to him, but Bernie Eccleston owned the team that benefited from Carlos not having that win in South Africa. And Bernie was the guy, of course, that did the deal to take the points away from the team, from the race. So... Um, that's what used to happen in those days. It, I, it, it, was as, it was as outlandish as what happened in Abu Dhabi in 21. Just think about it. Reutemann wins the 81 South African Grand Prix, admittedly a race which doesn't include the grand teams like Ferrari and Alfa Romeo because there's a fight going on and potentially it might be another part of the world, it might be another series. Nobody knows how this whole split's going to get resolved. But Carlos looks Bernie in the eye on the grid and says, Bernie... Look me in the eye and tell me this is a round of the world championship. I want to know before I start this Grand Prix. And Bernie shook his hand and said, it is a round of the world championship, Carlos. And I say that because a lot of people say Bernie's word is, is as good as his contract. And so he had Bernie's word and he won the race. Great drive, started on slicks in the wet and then inherited the lead. Well, inherit. He got the lead when the track started the dry and just won the race. Beautiful win. And, um, and then they solved the split between the two big parties a couple of months later. And one of the things they did was take the points away from South Africa. It wasn't as if another race had been run the same day for the Grandy teams or anything like that. They just took the points away from South Africa. And had that race counted, Carlos would have been world champion. So I think Carlos also felt, when I got to know Carlos quite well, it was back end of 74. And he always felt that 
um, 75, his championship was watered down a little bit by signing Carlos Pache and having Pache in the car. I mean, admittedly, he joined by 74, but Carlos is another reason I'm not a great fan of these two joint number one things, because Carlos always felt that with a Ricky Von Opel or a Richard Robarts in the other car, he could have could have done a little bit better than he did. But 75 is pretty near it. 76, he really felt that Brabham could have won the championship with the Cosworth engine. And of course, Bernie did the deal with Alfa Romeo, flat 12 Alfa, and then ground effect was discovered. So that was completely, it was very heavy, used a massive amount of fuel, and they were nowhere. And so that was free engines for Bernie, but a championship gone. And that's, that's a year that he should have won the championship in Carlos's mind, 76, in the Brabham with the Cosworth engine, and again, 81. Olu Idada, Super Chat. Thank you very much. Hello, Peter. The trend over the decades is to slow the cars down. Is this counterproductive? Uh, well, it's counterproductive if you think that things should get faster and faster. I know that's a supercilious answer. I don't think it is, no. I think from, from the minute the four-wheel carriage was invented, almost. I mean, De Dion won the first race whenever it was, 1880-odd. It's the only entry, mind you, but it was this sort of funny four-wheel thing, steam-driven car. Um, but then as soon as they got two or three cars together, they quickly started to have accidents. And in those days, the accidents are caused by the fragility of the cars, the instability of the cars, and of course, the natural hazards of the open public roads in which they were racing. Rocky roads with terrible ditches either side, whatever you, you know, as bad as you can imagine. So from day one motor racing has always been about slowing the cars down really and and i think we have to do that I, it, ultimately speed is dangerous if it's beyond the, the 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 control of the human being and i'm not saying that the cars now are anywhere near that but we got to a point when we were at ground effect era with skirts and the engineers were talking about the drivers having to wear g-suits and it being almost beyond human capacity to control them well. And, and, and when we get to that point, I think we need to, because the, the circuits, we can't have infinite runoff areas everywhere, can we? We do, we, they are, it is a show. We do need to have racetracks with boundaries. And if you have boundaries in super, super quick cars, it's gonna be trouble. So it's, it's not counterproductive, actually. I mean, you're talking to a guy that's always been very, very, paranoid about safety and wanting to have as much safety as possible in racing within a couple of reasons but I've never I was never in agreement with say Sterling Moss who felt that racing should have this element of this built-in element of danger um, because I've just seen and I know Sterling was a driver so I'm not saying in any way I can compete with his brain power but um, I, I lost so many friends racing driver friends in my 30s late 20s, 30s, that I'm just completely, you know, anything that makes racing safer, if it means going slower, I will do it. I'll, I'll support it. So there you go. What do you think about Williams' deviation from the Mercedes rear suspension? Well, it's not the first time they've done their own gearbox against all odds, is it? They had that own their own, that lovely little wedgie gearbox-shaped thing they had for about four years when everybody else had gone to the cartridge system. They continued to run that. 
And I suspect, you know, there's a Williams gearbox department sitting there saying, oh, you know, we want to do another gearbox. We're good. We should keep going. Yeah, we'll do another gearbox. Don't need that Mercedes rubbish. Uh, that shouldn't be saying that. Um, I'm only joking. Um, but so, yeah, you know, they can do gearboxes at Williams. They know how to do gearboxes for a start. And secondly, um, as James Well said, you know, budget cab era, it costs a lot more money to go the new 2024 update Mercedes rear end. We'll stick with our old one. Good call, probably, you know, Williams gearbox. Nice. I like gearboxes. I like transmission systems. I mean, I, as pieces of engineering, they look great, I think. And if Williams are doing their own one, wonderful. Um, since each team can only run one car, is it the same car? Yeah, it's the same car. They have to do all that driver seat changes and pedal changes and all that stuff. That's why they have that brake in the middle. I think I'll make that last bit up, but I suspect that is the reason. I don't think it's because they all need to have lunch. Um, Sunil says, uh, oh, I, I did have him saying something and now I've managed to mess this up. What time is it? Ten, Nearly 10.30 in... Um, that was a good question, that one. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, it was about Audi. Were there any other manufacturers I'd like to see in Formula One? I think that was what the question was. Uh, no, I think it's enough. I think I like to see the proper race teams, actually. And it's good if the, if the manufacturer comes in and brands an engine or helps with an engine or something. But I've always liked the concept of a small prototype race team rather than a big manufacturer coming in and, you know, making a huge splash. Arsene Martin. Peter, I was wondering, doing some talk with some friends of friends fan of Jim about star move like Lewis to Ferrari. Did Jim ever consider a move to another team at a point like drive for Ferrari? Uh, Jim Clark, I think you mean Jim Clark. And did he ever consider driving for Ferrari? No, I don't think he ever did. I think he, when he drove for Aston Martin, but then the Aston Martin Formula One car was so horrendously bad. Uh, that he he never actually did the race. He just tested it, and it was a front engine car and a rear engine era. I don't know what Aston were thinking of. Good engine, but pfft. so without a drive, Colin Chapman then signed him. So I think Jim always felt very loyal to Colin about that. And I yes, he was towards the end. He was very very upset and nervous about the fragility of the Lotuses and things breaking. Um, the, the more he was in Formula One, the more he drove for Lotus, he felt that way. But at the same time, he'd had so much success with Colin. And he liked Colin so much as a person and as a friend that I just don't think he, it ever really entered his mind. He, 62, I think it was Monaco, might have been German Grand Prix. He sat in uh, a, a shark-nosed Ferrari. There's a picture of him sitting in a shark-nosed Ferrari in the pit lane having a laugh. It'd be funny, wouldn't it? Imagine if Lewis went down to the Ferrari garage tomorrow and just sat in one of the Ferrari cars. Imagine the pictures all around the world. Imagine what Mercedes would do. Anyway, Jim did that. Um, and he did actually drive Pierre Bardinon's Ferrari 330p4 on Bardinon's own private test track in France, hill climb or something. There's a great picture of him wearing his Buco helmet in 67. He's in this 330 P4 Ferrari. That's about as near as he ever got to drive for Ferrari. I'm sure he could have driven for Ferrari if he'd sort of offered his services. But 
I think in a way Jimmy was sort of in awe of Colin and didn't really want to do anything to upset Colin. I think that's how it was. I mean, he used to share hotel rooms with him and Colin sort of looked after Jim in Jim's younger days. And it was all a little bit like that. Peter, what do you think of the new format for the sprint weekends? Ugh, don't tell me there's another one. I don't know. I haven't read it through yet. I try not to read about sprint weekends. So I'll come back to that question when we see what it's all about. Sorry. If I see a news thing coming in, sprint format revised, I tend to say, yeah, next email, please. Um, don't like sprint races. Uh, Big Feathers Farm. What can be said about the difference in practice times last year versus today? It seems so much faster this year. Yeah, well, should be. Tires as well, but also cars. And it will be going faster, won't it? Yeah. What, do we, what can be said about the difference? I think, yeah, we're getting near the end of this formula. We've got another year to go, so it'll get faster again in 2025, and, and that'll be the end of that. And then we go into 26, and it's a completely different deal. So the nearer you get to the end of a formula, the more everybody's finding the limits and perfecting things. So it will get quicker over the next 18 months, two years, really. Uh, yeah, we've done that one. Jacques Villeneuve's driving style. Thank you very much again for that. Um, what do you think about French TV crew, Canal Plus? I only, the only French TV guy I know is Jean-Michel Tibby, who is one of my best mates, who's a great cameraman and does a lot of the super slow-mos, a lot of the podi podiums, whatever you want to call it, and is just a really good Formula One cameraman. Really good. I mean, in the winter, he rides his motorbike across the cobble, wet cobblestones of the Place de la Concorde in Paris when he's working for a TV studio there, presumably Canal Plus. And, uh, but then he does all these Grand Prix. What a guy. Yeah, should have him on the show sometime. Think outdoor. Hi, hi. Um, K-B-A-N-D-Z, bands, bands. I have the strangest feeling Ferrari are going to be super competitive this year. Good. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I really do. Yeah, they just they look pretty good, don't they? You know, and it's about time they had a decent year again, isn't it? Then Mall Mallory Talman says, at least their tire wear seems better. Yeah, I hope so. DC says hi, Peter. Hi. Um, first one live. <laughs> we got to the first live one. Oh no! Um, love the chats, Peter. Thank you very much. Um, did anybody notice, unknown angler, did anybody notice the big difference between front nose heights in testing so far? Williams, Visa, Red Bull, Visa, Red Bull seem to have very high front wings compared to many other cars. Um, I don't think Scarps, Scarps didn't comment on that, did he? So I'm not sure uh, he, not, he noticed that. I'll mention that to him when we chat again on Friday. So we'll see what he says about that. Um, so that's that. Sujith has retracted his message. Hopefully it's because we dealt with it. Um, would it not be cool, says Hendrik Hertzer, that drivers could communicate towards each other? Well, I've often said that. If they really wanted to spice up the show, instead of having things like sprints, they should actually have the radio so that you can talk, one driver can talk to another. It, why wouldn't they do that? Because the teams are so into their own thing and they take it all so seriously, the secrecy and this and that. But for the show, it would be just unbelievable, wouldn't it? I mean, I've suggested that many times, I have to say, going back to the F1 racing days. I think it'd be great, only on race day. 
imagine front row of the grid. You got Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen for the Bahrain Grand Prix, and they start chatting to each other. Max says, "Remember, I'm going down the inside, Charles." He said, "Yeah, but I'm going to be on your outside, so make sure you let me through." It would just be brilliant, wouldn't it? Uh, Iron Mechanic seven one one zero Ferrari is looking good. Okay, good. Hi, Peter J W. How do you think Lewis leaving Mercedes will affect his chances this season? I don't think it'll affect his chances that much, actually. I think he'll. I think if the car's good, I think Lewis will drive really well because he's got the sort of weight off his shoulders. He knows what he's doing. He's looking forward to going to Ferrari. He's looking forward to being a Ferrari driver. Red overalls, Italy, formaggi, risotto, and he's going to be relaxed and drive well. And if the car's not very good, you know, he'll just be looking until the end of the year and probably drive well too as a result. He won't get too stressed about it. If the car is really good, and he's got to race George wheel to wheel right up there to the championship. That's a different story, you know. Then it will become pretty tense when it towards the end. Who's Mercedes going to want to win? Is Toto going to say, I want Lewis to win his eighth? Or is he going to say, I want the guy that can actually wear Mercedes logos in 2025? That'll be a difficult call. But if you, have, if you must hire George Russell to replace Valtteri Bottas, what do you expect? Um... Tangy Hatchi. I don't hear much talk of the drivers' union these days. Isn't that something they could use to get the tyre rules changed? No. Because the drivers' union could say, we don't want these tyres and we don't like these, the fact they go off the cliff. We don't like these tyres that only do a third of the race distance. And they'll say, and the FIA will say, okay, that's fine. So what tyre manufacturer are you bringing into the sport? You drivers bringing into the sport that will do exactly what Pirelli's doing, but provide tyres that last the full Grand Prix distance. Tell us what that tyre company is and we'll allow them to come up for tender next time. That's what will happen. And of course, no tyre company in the world wants to do that. So the drivers can only, they can talk about safety things, little things, and they can talk about some sporting regs maybe. But I don't think they can do anything that involves spending money because none of the drivers want to spend any of their money, do they? I mean, when's the, can you imagine if, it would be quite good actually, wouldn't it? You know, if Lewis and... Max and Charles said, look, we're all getting paid much too much money. We're all going to put 50% of our retainers into a pool now. And we want this money to be spent on uh, whatever it is. We want, we want to give it to Pirelli to make sure Pirelli make better tires that last longer. <laughs> yeah, right. Is that Visa car literally the RB19? I don't think it is. No, I think it's, I don't think it is, I think is the answer from Scarbs. Refer to see Scarborough, please, for that one. I suppose that's another question. I'll jot it down because maybe it's something he can just answer. In fact, it's a good point. Anybody want me to ask any questions of Scarbs? I am doing another interview with them on Friday. So if you've got something like that, I'll, um, I'll try and get it into there. Um... Inverted free solo at Mallory Talman. That's a fascinating question. I was looking up the old Formula One results and the amount of DNS with guys that won the championship was fascinating. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's how Schechter won the championship, of course, because in 1979, Bernie said to himself, so how am I going to let Ferrari win a championship? We need Ferrari winning a championship because I need to get them to sign these other deals over here. Uh, I know what I'll do. I mean, they've got Michelin tires and they they're only good about 50% of the time the rest of the time they're hopeless so we'll we'll make it 
that they only have to score points, count points for 50% of the races. Then Ferrari should win it easily because when the Michelins are good, they're better than the Goodyears. And that's exactly what happened. They divided the season, 16 race season, into two halves of eight. And then they said only the best four races in each half counted for points. So you can select which four you liked. And out of eight, Michelin were bound to get it right in four. And they did. And Schechter sort of won two races, had two seconds in both halves and won the championship. Nobody complained. Chippo Mumbi. Hi, Peter. How does the FIA come up with the rules? I don't know. It's a very good question. I don't know. I have to say that because I'm going through a bit of a personal thing with the FIA right now, which I'm not very happy about. And I'm asking myself exactly the same question. And I won't go into it because it's not important to anybody else but me. But um, I'm asking myself exactly that question. So I guess it's a question that many racing people have asked themselves over decades of Formula One. How did the FIA come up with this stuff? Um, Mull, always love hearing your analysis on everything. Thank you very much, mate. That's very kind to hear, to, to, to read. Thank you. Okay, Mary, Mallory Talman. It keeps making very good points. Inverted free solo. Back when Renault was racing more to push the development of the turbo engine than to finish races. Lol, lol, lol. Okay. I mean, Renault, that was a great period for Renault. You've mentioned that time, 77 onwards with Renault. Really nice team, nice people, completely open with all their technology, wanted everyone to share the, the dream and share the, the drama of creating this new engine in Formula One. And we used to be invited on mega Renault press trips all over the world and used to hang out with Prost and Anu all the time. And it was, and Michelle... Tattoo and Francois Castang and all the good guys at Renault. And, uh, you know, it's just not like that anymore, is it? We just used to love that Renault period. Another, I love the livery of that car too. Yellow, nice yellow, nice shade of yellow. Yellow, bring it back. Um, so here we go. We're talking about the Visa. From far, and it's pretty obvious when you actually look at the car, it's more a mix of the RB19 and the SF23. Right, um, so let's have a look. I'm going to see if this works. Okay, that allows me to scroll a bit more. Um, Big Feathers Farm is asking about this Verstappen thing. I don't know. Again, you know, all this is <clears throat> this is under the heading of scandal and hearsay, none of which I'm very good at, I'm afraid. I'm not a journalist. I'm just a Formula One what am I, freak? No, no, I'm a freak. I'm a Formula One enthusiast. There you go. Got a lot of books here about Formula One. And they tell me a lot about a sport that I love. Black and gold. Stunning combo. Amazing looking cars. Livery discussion. Yeah, I was never... I was actually, when it came to the cigarettes, I preferred gold leaf to black and gold myself. I thought it was incredible that they managed to get all those colours on one car. Just astonishing. And the fact that Jim Clark did that with his mechanic. Um, uh, I'll remember his name in a second. It, it, just the two of them did that livery between the New Zealand and Levin Tasman races and did that complete complicated livery on the Lotus 49, Alan McCall. Just um, amazing. I love that livery. And I also love that, I have to say, I love the Yardley BRM livery as well. I thought that was great. I like the brawn livery, white with those fluorescent green wheels. Something very functional about that. I love the front wing of the Mercedes, says my lullaby. 
looks logical. Can Red Bull can the Red Bull assimilate this tech and implement it easily? I gather from Scarbs that it is relatively easy to do, but the big question is whether it's legal to do. And as he points out in the video that we've had at the beginning of the show, that the problem with that is that it, it will create more drag and more air movement and therefore make it more difficult for the car behind to overtake. It'll therefore get to the essence of what these 2022 regulations were all about. And so if anybody else tries to do it, they'll probably just ban it completely. That's what Scarbs thinks. And I think he's right. I just can't see after all this that they will allow all that to happen. Um, I don't know. This is a good question. Looking at the longest stints, who seems fastest? I didn't do enough analysis of the longest stints too early in the test. Well, we'll come to that question by Friday. Has Ferrari made a step forward? I think they have. Scarbs is a bit more pro Mercedes than I am, but I think Ferrari looked reasonably good today. Peter, Greg J, what was the fastest car in Formula One history? And if the regs for the 24 season were the same as the fastest car, how fast do you think the top car would be now? When you say the fastest car, do you mean fastest in a straight line, I wonder, without wings on it, in the Bonneville salt flats? Or do you mean around Spa-Francorchamps or around Monte Carlo? I mean, we, fast usually refers to top speed. Quick usually refers to the lap. Quickest car, fastest car. I mean, the, the most technically advanced car of all time was the Williams FW14B because in, in and that was 92. 93, they actually reduced wing sizes and a few things. So it wasn't quite as quick as the, as the 14B would have been if it had just carried on. So that was the most technically advanced car. And to some extent, you could argue that was the fastest car, given the grip level of the Goodyear tyres at the time and the performance of the engine and everything else. So it's very difficult to compare eras and engine formulae, chassis formulae, everything else. I mean, we had Alberto Ascari in the Bimotori Alfa Romeo in pre-war in the 30s doing 198, I think, maybe over 200 miles an hour. And that car was, I mean, obviously there were land speed record breaking cars, so we won't include those. But that, that car was, I think, maybe the fastest in a straight line. But it was ate its tires like crazy and it was very heavy and it wasn't really raceable. So, you know, then you'd be looking at, well, it's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, Lotus 49 without wings around Spa. I don't think it was doing over 200. I think it's probably doing 190 odd, I would imagine. So then you're looking at the more powerful cars which do over 200 today, but then you got all the downforce that causes the drag. Which was the fastest car, Grand Prix car of all time, taking into account the lap? <laughs> it's a good question. Probably Red Bull RB19. Um, inverted free solo. The new Aston campus is beautiful. Buildings aren't too creatively named, though. Building one, two, and three. <laughs> Sounds like Tesla, doesn't it? One, two, three, model one, model two. Yeah, what's that all about? Um, I get the one, two, three, the model. I think that's a bit ridiculous. Um, ha, under HA, under current Formula One regulations, can you really catch Red Bull by copying their design? That's what Aston Martin has done with the side pod. 
let's see now and Red Bull has come up with something unexpected well, well that's right and as you keep saying it's all about what you're building on and you can't really just say we'll just scrap this car we have no knowledge of we'll pretend we've got no knowledge of anything we'll just build a Red Bull copy because you won't get the fine details and you won't understand what they're doing dynamically with the car you may see odd photographs that you can copy but you'll never get it right and so you've got to build on your own building blocks as I keep saying and that's where it's very difficult. What do you think of the driving style of Kimi Antonelli? I haven't seen his driving style yet. All I saw was a race he did last year in Austria in the wet and he got beaten. So I didn't really take much notice of it after that because it obviously wasn't a good day for him. So I haven't seen any since then. And I tend not to watch on boards to judge driving style anyway because it's only the, it only gives half the, the picture, doesn't it? It's only the hand movement. You can't tell anything without really listening to the note of the engine, watching them on the circuit and trying to factor in what the footwork is. So haven't done that yet. I'm waiting to be pleasantly surprised. Although, as I said before, generally when there's a massive crowd over in this direction following this driver telling everybody how wonderful he is, I always think, well, there must be somebody else as good as that who's got no attention whatsoever. I'll go and chat to that bloke. That's just, that's just me, you know. I just When there are lots of people raving about somebody, I tend not to. It was different with Senna because there weren't so many people around then. You know, it was, yeah, people raved about him and people knew how good he was, but it was only the, really, only the people that really watched Ford 1600 or Ford 2000 that really knew. And there wasn't that many people then. It was great. But today it's just mass media rubbish, isn't it? So forget it. Uh, G King G H Smith. If I were a Ferrari fan, I'd be excited. I'm sure they ran high fuel and worked on race pace the entire day, which was their weakness last year. Yep, if you're right, and I'm, it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But if they did, for sure, Red Bull did the same because that's about the margin you that there is there. I think, and I'm sure Red Bull wouldn't be running empty at any stage other than just the first couple of laps out of the pits because they tend to run fuel more often than anybody else, don't they? So why wouldn't they be running fuel as well? So, yeah, I think you're right about Ferrari. I think they're, they're going pretty well and the car looks pretty good and the team looks better. But I don't think we should read too much into the lap time at the moment. Michael Skilton, Alonso to Mercedes has the same issue as the one plus one contract that Hamilton had. Wouldn't you aim to get an upcoming star, get them bedded in for 25 and ready for the 26 season? Maybe, yeah, as I say, you know, there's this Kimmy guy, the great Kimmy, and um, plenty of other good people as well. I would put Oscar Piastri in the car that if it was me, but and money was no object, which it doesn't appear to be with Mercedes or, um, well, Mercedes. So, uh, yeah, and drivers aren't part of the budget cap thing, are they? So I would get, I'd get Piastri in there, but that's just, again, you know, that's just my opinion. Bobby D, Louis going to be destroyed by Supermax, then next year... Little Louie going to crash big time. He will destroy Ferrari. It's a bit of a stupid one, actually. I'm not going to get rid of that one straight away. Um, Rosso Corsa, 91, best livery ever. Yeah, I always thought the blue was a bit dark. That's my opinion. Again, probably very personal, this thing about liveries, isn't it? Piet Vic, Vic, hi Peter. Will Sergio Perez make it with Red Bull to the end of the season? Uh, yeah, I think he will. I think he will. I don't see why Red Bull would get rid of him 
before the end of the year. Why would they do that? Because he's there because he's a good fit for, for the max that they have and the team they have and his experience and his knowledge and how good he is in some departments and he can still win a race or two. So why would they get rid of him? You know, he does the job. That's my opinion. I think that's that's the tipsy chicken. I really think we should have a Monaco spec or a narrow street circuit spec chassis. Yeah, well, a lot of people say get rid of Monaco because the cars are too big, don't they? But it's nice that you've got that attitude. Mine is I think we should put Monaco in the middle of the desert somewhere and and uh, so for posterity because it may not be around forever ever either because all the people that do good is might say oh no it's too much of a qualifying race can't overtake it's terrible but you know it is a great circuit with some great corners up the hill into the swimming pool into rascas there's some great bits of road there car dunford will brits still support hamilton this year well i don't know i'm not much into all this nationalism business um i don't really think about it i think brits and no different from any other race. I mean, look at the Dutch with Max. There weren't many Dutch supporters of Formula One before Max came along. They weren't there for Joss, were they? Or Geis van Lennep. Um John Robbins, John Robson. I can remember Arrows when they had a backstreet industrial unit in Milton Keynes. Must have been 50 people worked at that place back then. Yeah, it's about right. 50 people. As many as that. <laughs> Did they all get paid, I wonder? Yeah, probably, maybe. Actually, my son reminded me of something today. Well, he didn't remind me. He told me, which I guess is true. Remember that that uh, Porsche V10 engine that Arrows commissioned? And then, as I understand it, Arrows ran out of money and Porsche never do anything unless they're getting fully paid. Uh, and Ron did that with the tag money, but Arrows didn't. And so the engine was a disaster in the Arrows for a bit in Formula One. But then Porsche then put that engine into a production car called the Carrera GT transverse I think V10 unbelievable road car and he was he was showing me it yesterday and the sound of the startup I thought unbelievable why didn't I buy one of those when they were out I think I just I was so shaken that Porsche had tried to do a Formula One engine and it hadn't worked first time ever in the history of Formula One that um I just sort of I don't know. I just blanked the whole thing for a while, I guess. But I that car, wow. What a car to have now. Porsche with a V10 engine. Amazing. Yazan Rajay, good afternoon, Peter. That magical time of the year again. I think this is about two hours old now, but thank you very much for that. Yeah, because, I mean, this is just starting again. It's not afternoon for me. It's like 10 to 11 at night now. Uh, Hassan Mehdi, Vettel to Mercedes. Is that even a thing? What do you know? I don't know much, really. I can't imagine it would be. Uh, I just can't imagine it. They, they might as well, in my opinion, if they're thinking like that, they might as well put Mick Schumacher in the car for a year. I think he'd do as well as Vettel. Um, hi, Peter. Does it seem that McLaren is sandbagging a bit the performance by looking at today's testing sessions? Well, no, they, they were second quickest. They were really quick. So in, re in reality, you might might think the opposite. You might think, well, a Red Bull running quite a lot of fuel and McLaren maybe not running a lot of fuel. I don't think that's the case. I think McLaren are probably doing a very studious job and running appropriate amount of fuel. I certainly don't think they're sandbagging. I think that's a, it's probably quite a, it's a car with a nice big sweet spot and they've got it working well. Um, okay. 
Nick says, I'm watching with some lag. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. I'm reading with some lag because there's so many questions. Just noticed my question being answered. But I said, this is Nick's, the RB19 when I meant the RB20 being floaty on the bumpy parts. Yeah, yeah, it does look nice, doesn't it? And 19 did as well. Robert D'Amico, could Mercedes send Lewis to Ferrari and Carlos to Merck this year and the team swap their salaries? Uh well, I don't think it'll happen because if the Mercedes is not going well, I can't imagine Carlos Sainz is going to want to leave Ferrari before the end of the year if the Ferrari is going reasonably well or vice versa. And anyway, there are so many contracts involved with the drivers and sponsorship that Mercedes will be as embarrassing as it is for them to have Lewis carrying a Ferrari logo in 2025. They're going to want to get as much as they can out of it and wind it down the correct way, aren't they? I imagine it's a difficult situation for them. Um, ben forty eight ten. Are you attending every Grand Prix for Rolex this season? No, no, just selected races where Rolex have a decent suite in the paddock club, which isn't all the races, interestingly enough, because there was so there's so much demand for paddock club space that. Quite often it's all a communal thing and a bit of a mess. But when they have a decent suite, I'm usually there to with Sir Jackie Stewart, actually, to um, to work with Rolex, which is always a privilege. It's great. Love it. Um, Steven Seagull, Mercedes driver lineup is easy. Bring in Fernando, then get Russell out and bring in Antonelli. So you think Fernando Antonelli. Wow. Everybody's just totally convinced Antonelli's the boy, don't they? Wow. Incredible. Good. Hope he is. Um, is there a story, Yazan Rajid, behind Carlos shedding some inner circle members following the news he'll be leaving Ferrari at the end of the season? Mm, don't know. Not sure he's got that much inner circle. He's got really good physio, Rupert Mannering's son. I think he's called Rupert as well. Really good guy, English physio, and he's got his dad, obviously. Don't know much else about him. Um, and w yeah, I mean, the, the the problem was the day they signed that long-term contract, new one long-term contract with Charles Leclerc on big money, that's when Carlos would have been getting a bit nervous. And then a few days later, a week later, they signed Lewis. So, yeah, I guess, you know, he, Carlos in his mind probably thinks, well, you know, Freddie Vassar, it's always going to be difficult with him and I need to move on and I hope as I say I hope he's in an Audi that's right long term I think it'll be really good for him Visa Minardi would have been this is agreeing that we should call them Minardis from now on yeah Visa Minardi Minardi would have liked the Visa sponsorship believe me um, I'd be very surprised says Ginkin Smith if Merck brings in a veteran driver to replace Hamilton they need to support George and bring in new talent yeah probably so yeah this next one Peter Carroll Krauss RB20 Phantom, as in F4 Phantom. Yeah, yeah. Quick plane, fast plane. Um, inverted free solo. Love Nando at Merck, but dumping George. Also, is that your real name? Anyway, it's talking Stephen Seagull. Okay. Um, so it's all. Sebogo. Hi, Peter from Montreal, Quebec. Hi there. Yeah, one of my favorite cities. Love it. 
great to have you on the show. Not too much longer to go, actually, because it's like eight. I started at eight, three hours, nearly three hours. Gasoline is the best smell. I think this was when I was talking about the Pergamino coffee beans. Mm, not sure. Depends what gasoline you're talking about. Castrolar, I suppose, is the other one. Castrolar, newly mown grass, and Pergamino coffee. Alonzo blend. Um, Rowett Cohen, good, agrees with me on the cost cap. Formula One is an engineering competition that's been stifled by the cost cap. Absolutely right. And I, you know, I just am so sad about that. But anyway, can't do anything about it. Um, Vizan Georgian Man, it's 11 p.m. in Romania. I need to go to bed. Well, it's 11 p.m. in Spain. So there you go. Um, so there we are. Um, burnt race gas is the best smell. Someone's going to say burning rubber now after this, aren't they? Um, burning burning this. Actually, when I take Dexter out for a walk, the burning of the logs in the wooden in the open fires here. I know it's not great for the... Uh, we don't have them, but some people do, and the smell is just great at night on a cold, frosty night. Not misty night, anyway, let's put it that way. Um, Sebastian Elgar Cox, completely agree on Sky's coverage. Commentary team is tired and jarring. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's all about not stating the obvious. And that's what a lot of people do these days because they think that's what everybody wants to hear. And you want to be, and you never, if you're doing interviews, you never ask a question in which the answer can be yes or no. That's for sure. And you always want to listen to what the person's saying when you're talking to them, doing an interview in that bullring thing, instead of saying, um, so you must be disappointed with what happened today. But on the bright side, uh, you can make a good choice because you're outside the top 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what will be a race strategy on Sunday? And he'll say, well, you know, I'm just going to do the best we can. We got the strategy freedom. Uh, and the next question is, ah, oh, yeah, but you have the freedom of the strategy, don't you? Yeah, I just said that. And so it goes on. Uh, anyway, um, I totally agree with how the cap is restrictive. Just ask Williams. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Williams, you would imagine, have done less to their car than, say, Red Bull with all those radiators that they've moved around in the car and everything, as Scarves has described. And yet Williams are there saying because of the cost cap, we're not going to put on the new gearbox and the new rear end. But is it just the cost cap or is it they just don't want to spend the money? Probably a bit of the latter, I would think, because I can't imagine that they've spent a massive amount on the rest of the car. Newly mown grass, says Rally Cross Craig. Something I remember from Ingleston races in the summer. Don't forget the glorious smell of castor oil. Yeah, well, there we go, castor oil. Yep, has to be there. And actually, I think two-stroke, I mean, Yamaha, I've got a Yamaha motocross bike, and the two-stroke oil in that blend is really nice too. First owner, my Yamaha motocross bike, Gordon Matthew Sumner, better known as Sting. New, yeah, there we go. Fangio the legend. Octe Yilmaz. Fangio the legend. Yeah, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Just amazing. Oh, another one. Here's a good one. This is a very good one. Uh, I can't get it to come up. Here we go. Linseed oil on a cricket bat. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Except that today... The cricket bats all—they don't smell the same, do they? They don't smell that love of that lovely willow that they used to be when you put the oil on them. You know, nothing is smells the same, and I guess it's all because of the 
rules and regulations governing the chemicals they can use, but nothing actually smells as strong as it used to. Not that I'm a massive fan, but Gerard Ducarage was. But if you take Brute Fabergé aftershave as a good example, you only needed, you could buy a bottle about that big in those days, and it was just concentrated Brute, and it would last all day. And you could smell Ducarage from the other side of the paddock almost. <laughs> Today, you buy Brute like this in the supermarket, and it lasts three seconds. Why is that? And it's actually just happened to me with um suntan lotion i bought some 50 factor hawaiian tropic suntan lotion about six months ago and it's just run out and it's got this lovely smell of reminds you of a caribbean island when you put it on it's got that sort of lovely suntan lotion smell it's a cream a sunscreen and so i went to england a couple of days ago on business and in the duty-free area because I didn't have time to buy one in a normal shop. I went to Boots to buy, see if they had any of this, because I needed to buy some more, thinking in England it'd be quite cheap because it's the winter. Who's going to buy a suntan lotion in England? And sure enough, they had it. Factor 50, Hawaiian Tropic suntan lotion. Guess how much it was? £18 for one bottle like this. £18. At that moment, I opened my phone and saw went to Amazon ES which is a Spanish Amazon exactly the same suntan lotion eight euros exactly the same bottle it's just the world has gone mad anyway um getting back to it even that over the years doesn't smell as strong as it used to and and so it goes on and the cricket bats don't smell as nice as they used to and the batting gloves brand new ones don't smell as nice as they used to nor do leather thin leather, leather gloves. I don't know why it is. It's not my sense of smell. It's something, everything's watered down these days. Nothing is quite as strong. When I was a kid in Australia, we used to spray Santa snow on our Christmas trees, white snow from a pressure pack, and it was all lovely white. And it used to smell of, it's a combination of pine and lime. It was the most beautiful smell. These days you buy white spray, it doesn't smell at all. Somebody will tell me, oh, it's the aromatics of this and that's illegal and you can't have that. It's such a sad thing. You know, the smell has gone too. The smell of life. Anyway, moving on. Talking of aftershaves, actually. Bernie always smelt of Aramis. Always. Massive Aramis thing. And Ducarouge was always brute, as was Pat Simmons, actually, from memory. Mick de Haas, who was the Canon sponsorship guy, was... Um, Aqua de Velva, the Spanish green one, uh, which you can't buy anymore in Spain. I've never seen it in any of the Corte Inglés or whatever here in Spain. Aqua de Velva used to be, I mean, Sterling Moss, I remember him saying, Sterling used to use Aqua de Velva. I remember he used to say to me, oh, if you go to Spain, you've got to buy Aqua de Velva and buy me a bottle too. Can't even get it now. Probably in some online somewhere. And Osman very kindly I was having this conversation with you people a couple of years ago and I, telling, I was reminding him how, reminding myself how nice Black Label Yardley smelt. And he sent me a bottle of Yardley Black Label, BRM edition, brilliant. And the original Yardley Classic smelt great as well. It always reminds me of Christmas in Australia too. I don't know why. I think I got a bottle for Christmas one year. Um, okay, where are we going now? Where have we been? What are we going to do when we get there anyway? Um, 
I can't. So people ask me to talk about Antonelli. Lee, I can't. Sorry, I need to see these guys and watch them. Um, so I can't. I, I, everybody's talking so much about Antonelli. He's, he's won the world championship, hasn't he? Really, effectively. Doesn't need to drive at all. Um, so chill flopper. I don't know what these say before I put them up, but it says, is my current fave live analyst to watch every race <laughs> after every session? Thank you very much. That's very kind. Um, are safe estimates about the car's qualities feasible at this time already? No, that's why Scarbs just did a piece on what he saw today without making too many conclusions, drawing too many conclusions, because you can't from this first day. Nobody in Formula One would be drawing too many conclusions right now. Um, Rotan Bastard, Bastard, is there a rule that keeps from having a channel to allow the air taken in at the side pod to be diverted down under the car? Possibly around the floor edge and all that stuff, there might be something. Again, look at the Red Bull, because whatever's going on at the Red Bull, they'll be absolutely on the edge of the regulations on that area. So I think answers probably there is. Um, dimensional thing. Okay. NASCAR, Indy 500. David Ocon. I think Lewis hates George. I don't think he hates George. I don't think he hates anyone, Lewis, does he? I think he's a good person. But I think he, as I've said, from day one, the minute they signed George, I said, didn't I? I said, absolutely, this is not going to be good for Lewis Hamilton and it'll cramp his style in the same way that Oscar Piastri is not good for Lando Norris. Mark my words. Um... Summer Sahel, how do you how do you this is better Lewis or Max if they're driving the same car? <sighs> if they do the same amount of testing, the same amount of familiarization, the same everything, <sighs> are very difficult between those two now. I think Max has developed a lot over the last couple of years, a couple of areas where he's definitely improved. Traction probably is better. Uh, Lewis possibly he's I think probably he's improved in a couple of areas as well that he's probably got from George you know just straight out flinging the car around as he has been recently with quite long corners just to get the tires to work and get some sort of sweet spot out of it but I think if they both got a great car with great balance great grip very difficult very difficult to put anything between them I mean Max is a lot younger maybe that's a factor What's the first thing that goes is your peripheral vision, they say. And I'm sure Lewis's peripheral vision is still 100%. So, And don't forget, you know, Jack Brabham was 44 when he was as quick as Jochen Rint in his last year in Formula One. And Lewis is, what, 40? So he's got a long way to go. Um, so, hi, Peter. Wouldn't it be better for the sports if the cars were standardised, as in all equal, let the teams with the best driver's strategy win? Well, that is the sport as a show, but it's not Formula One, which likes to tell its viewing public that it's the pinnacle of technical excellence, automotive excellence, as well as racing technical excellence. And uh, one of the great barriers to new teams coming into Formula One is that you have to design and build your own car even to enter the championship. And that's what Formula One has. It's one of the things it's erected around its castle to stop people coming in and if you 
if you suddenly say, oh no, you can come in, everybody can race a Dallara, they all do the same thing, then uh, Formula One no longer is Formula One. And personally, I wouldn't enjoy it anyway. I think the whole point is that we have a Ferrari and we have a Mercedes and we have a Red Bull and we have a McLaren. Uh, Wheeler Shinzi, do you think Perez will leave after 24? I think they may leave him after 24. They may. And who will replace? I think Alex Albon's got a good chance there. If not, I think it might be Liam Lawson. Mm. Or maybe Daniel Ricciardo. Maybe. Uh, we've done that one. Um, Newey bowing out. I don't think so. At the end of 25. Would he bow out at the end of 25? He would only bow out at the end of 25 if he's already said to everybody, including Red Bull, I can't stand the new 26 regulations. I'm out of here. I'm not going to design a car for this. And I think if that was the case, we would know about it by now, wouldn't we? Um, I know they haven't started work yet on the 26 car, but they're certainly thinking about it. And um, I can't imagine Adrian would would just sort of stop because he didn't like the new regulations. He quite likes the challenge, doesn't he? I think he does. Inverted free solo. If it was me, I wouldn't regulate the formula too much, but I'd do what I suggested earlier, cost cap and same measurement rules, but the teams can use whatever tech they want. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we say. Safety is very important there. Um, so, don't Peter, Zizi Miki, don't you think it's more fair to gauge the wind tunnel time and CFD inverse proportional with the wind, with the points a team gathers in the year on the annual prize money, they do the opposite thing. Uh, well, at the moment, they want to penalise the teams that do well in order to help the teams that aren't doing very well to be more competitive, which is all child's play. I think it's nonsense, but that's what they try to do, and and that's. And it doesn't work, does it really? As we've seen, Red Bull have been penalised. Not only do they penalise themselves by exceeding the cost cap, but also by winning, they have the least amount of CFD and aero testing time, and yet they still produce the best car. So it's all about people and doing a good job. Okay, this is a good question. Peter Carroll Kraus, speaking of Williams livery, what exactly was his ICI? Well, ICI fibres... Well, ICI is an imperial chemical industries, huge company. ICI Fibers was a division of ICI who made synthetic fibers for clothing, mainly for clothing, sometimes other um, things as well. But it was a brilliant sponsorship because it was beautifully run from a central office, which is unusual even amongst racing sponsors today. It's unusual to have a, have a, have a central office controlling the sponsorship and basically generating funds from the affiliates around the world to put into the sponsorship pool. ICI Fibers guaranteed X amount to Williams, and then they basically recoup that money from the ICI Fiber affiliates around the world. So if you take Tactel as a good example of a name that appeared on the Williams or Fila, the reason those names appeared on the car in the ICI Fibers space is because in those countries, say Italy for Monza, uh, Fila was a big customer of ICI Fibers. A lot of the Fila tennis gear was made from ICI Fibers. So ICI Fibers would, long before the Italian Grand Prix, the head office, 
uh, Mike Francis would ring and get in touch with ICI Italy and say, right, we're coming to the Italian Grand Prix. We're going to have the ICI hospitality bus. You've got the capability of bringing 150 guests. Make sure you focus on the feeler uh, people because they're a big customer of yours. Invite them to the race and uh, we will put feeler on the car, but we need input from from you and you can get that from feeler money from feeler and we'll put that on the car and so they got all their money back effectively just because it was a well-controlled sponsorship and it was it was one of the best sponsorships i've ever worked with really really logical worked well they had about nine different countries uh, different companies around the world that all used ici fibers in their in their clothing and we had all those different names on the car it was really good and we'd meet all these different people at every race and sure enough ici did a really good job with hospitality and then Bernie killed it all by banning the ICI hospitality bus at races and said everybody had to go to the paddock club, his paddock club. And ICI said, well, if that's the case, we're out of here. We're not going to start doing all that entertainment alongside other sponsors. We want our own thing. And so they left. Very sad, really. But, you know, what can you do? Um, Crofty, who do you think will get the Mercedes seat after Hamilton's departure? Um, well... It's, you know, jury's out really, isn't it? They could offer it to somebody like Science and he could get a reasonably long-term deal, two or three-year deal, and then they put in one of their young guys. Or they could find a sort of plug-in driver for one year and put in a young guy in 26. It's an interesting time, isn't it? Because it's 25, which is the last year of this formula, and then it's 26, a brand new formula. So if you're think if you're Toto, you're thinking if it's this Antonelli, the the great Kimi. If you're thinking oh, we want to run the great Kimi, it's a brand new Formula One car with a fifty percent electrified engine. You're probably thinking that's a great moment to bring a young guy into Formula One because he's the fact that he doesn't have any experience doesn't really matter because it's all new, and he's probably going to be very switched on with the new technology because he's a young kid. So probably they're thinking that way and they therefore need to get some sort of plug-in driver for 25 if they don't think the great Kimmy's ready. But if the great Kimmy um, blitzes Formula 2 this year, as everybody says he will, even though I think Oliver Berman might have something to say about that, then they might even run him in 25. So, I mean, Lewis did one season of Formula 2 and then straight into Formula 1 in 2007, no problem. Kimmy didn't even do Formula 2, did he? Nor did Max. Nor did Vettel. Mark McIntyre. Peter, how do you think the Haas drivers feel today? Wishing a sale to Andretti or excited that Gunter is gone and a great season is coming? I think they're both... I think they both probably feel very comfortable with AAO Komatsu as team principal. He's calm, he's elegant, he's logical, he's a racer. He doesn't... And uh, speak unless there's something to be said and they get on with it and I think that'll get the best from both of them and I think he understands the craft of and the art of driving well I mean he, he grew up with Takamu Sato in Formula 3 in the UK in the great eras of Boyo, Double R and doing things really well a lot of work with Rob Wilson and He's, he understands that. He's worked with Bridgestone, great tyre company. And I think they I think they feel pretty comfortable with the way things are going, to be honest. Um, I don't know about great season coming, but I think they're going to have a pretty good year. I, I, Scarbs are saying the car's not up to much at the moment, but I'm sure they've got some ways of developing things. And um, don't forget, they've got 
pretty good link with well, very good link with Dallara and a very good link with Ferrari and a lot of stuff. So if it's used well, they should go should go very well Two, I keep saying it two very good drivers who I think have underperformed or been been a, for whatever reason they've been underperforming and I think we're going to get more from both of those two drivers they're both really good might even see him back at Rob Wilson who knows um, yeah so I'm gonna to have to start who's your favorite race commentator HR yeah Bob Varsha I think would have to be wouldn't it yeah, Bob, I think, yeah, fabulous. So much respect for Bob, the way he works. Uh, just going through some questions now because I've got to really um, kind of come bring an end. Douglas De Jaeger, will Hamilton achieve his dream of racing a Grand Prix in Africa? Yes, where? Kyle Army. Uh, yeah, I'd never really thought about that, but I guess it, he probably would love to have a race in South Africa, wouldn't he? Uh, I say South Africa, you said Africa, maybe Africa. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Formula One should be in Africa now, but they're not because the money's not there. So if the money's not there now, will the money be there two or three years down the road? Your guess is as good as mine. I'd, maybe not. I mean, we shouldn't get too excited about that. It's just a shame that they're not bending the rules a bit or reducing their financial barriers and racing in Africa because I think we need that race on the championship. What do you think about a Zicky Mickey? What do you think about a Saturday night e-race between all Formula One drivers starting on what they did earlier in the qualifying session? What's an e-race? Does that mean compute, you know, simulators? No. I'd love to see them do a proper race in touring cars or something on Saturday night. The days when they used to, I mean, minis, they, they used to do this Grand Prix, when was it, 62 Daily Express Trophy, I think, all the Grand Prix drivers raced minis before the Formula One race. The big name on the side, Jack Brabham, Jim Clark, John Surtees, all in minis, mega. Why don't they do that these days? Oh, because it'd be a clash of sponsors or whatever. That's what we need, a bit more of that. Um, Colin Chapman was a master in doing multiple sponsorship deals where the payments didn't necessarily go through the Team Lotus books. Yeah, yeah, people say that. I'm, you know, I'm a great Colin Chapman fan and I, I knew him pretty well. And I think, yeah, he went off the rails a little bit. But um, I know people who have done a lot worse. A lot. <laughs> not going to talk about it here, though. I'm talking about Formula One people. Um, inverted free solo great Colin Chapman documentary on F1 TV if you're interested okay thank you um, everybody take note Chipper Mumbai what do you think about a 26 Tesla BMW consortium not much not a fan of either really so there you go I can't imagine it's going to happen for 26 now they need to get their act together if they are um, Mark Morrison I'm sure you remember Peter Ron and his fatal crash in '74. If you that never happened, do you think he could have won a title? Sure. Are we talking about Pache here? Oh, that was '75. '74. Who are we talking about there? Ron. Um, sorry, I'm quite sure I understand that one. Um, so. 
I think we're getting near the bottom now somewhere. Let's see if there's any questions I haven't done. Uh, Super Chats. Lee Wood. Thank you very much, Lee Woods. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, here we go. Silvio Tavares. Brundle is a great commentator. There you go. I couldn't make any comics. I've never really heard him talk. Well, I haven't at all, but... Um, Roberto D'Amico. Ferrari have Rory Byrne working as a consultant. Can he bring his magic to the 24 car? How does he compare to Adrian Newey? Yeah, he's good. He's sort of slightly rough and ready, Adrian Newey, but he's still got a very good brain, Rory, and I think Ferrari are very lucky to have him, and I think they know they're lucky to have him. Um, so, Marwen Farris. Martin Brundle is one of the three great ambassadors to Formula One, alongside the great Murray Walker and Peter Windsor. Oh, well, that's... I shouldn't be with those. That's very sweet of you to say that, Marwen. Thank you. That RB20 set the bar even higher. Yes, it's true. Um... So, yeah, um, here's another one. I've done that one, I think. Yeah, that was a super. I'm just going through the super chats now, make sure I haven't missed anybody because it would be Big Chance Studio. Thank you very much. Like on that one. That's very kind. Too kind, really. Um, Shub Deep, another super chat. Shub Deep Singh. What if out of nowhere Checo signed a contract extension from Red Bull? What will happen to Danny Rick then? Well, I think right now Danny Rick's just so happy. He's in a Formula One car again, and it looks to be quite a good Formula One car, having messed his career around. Got a lot of money in the bank, but messed his career around by leaving Red Bull in the first place. He's now kind of on the edge, and if he does a brilliant job, there's half a chance he might get back in a Red Bull. And if he doesn't, he's still with a great team, with a great sponsor, and he's enjoying life like never before, and he'll drive well, I'm sure. As I say, he against Yuki would be a very good, interesting comparison, I think, this year. And I think that will be a quick car. So I think he's just, he's not even thinking about next year. He's just thinking, do the job, head down, see what happens. Uh, and I'm almost back to where I was before I made that big mistake to leave Red Bull. Um, <coughs> James Harper, Peter, do you think Lewis the best driver you've ever seen? If not, why? And where would you rank him? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I'm not, because it's very difficult to compare eras, but... I can't say he's the best driver I've ever seen because I've never seen um, I, I mean Lewis hasn't raced outside Formula One and Jim Clark for example did and so we were able to see Jim in so many different lights in so many different territories and different cars and modes that we could make a solid judgment about how good he really was and he was exceptional but we can't say that about Lewis because all we've ever done is seen him in a single seater I think I've never seen him in anything other than the cart Formula 3 car Formula 2 car or Formula 1 car which is a shame in the same way I've never seen Max Verstappen heel and towing with a manual gear change so I can't really compare him with that in Senna and so it goes on um, and, and that's why you can't compare different eras really I'm sure Lewis would love to have driven other types of car and I'm sure he'd love to drive a proper Euro F3 car again now because it's such a great car but uh, you can't compare them but he is in his time he's as good as anyone I've seen in this era yes I'd say that um, <coughs> excuse me yeah I've been talking a bit too long now so I'm just going to go back see if there's any other super chats and I'm going to draw a line there 
Stuka Stulk S T U L K four Sar. Oh, the Sar is the currency. Thank you very much. Um, sprint race idea: the number of races are in even number, so that only ten cars will race in any given race. Teams will choose which driver to race in what circuit. Points will be awarded to all drivers. Yeah, but you need to do all that stuff <coughs> just to make racing more interesting. I think Formula One's fine. We just need to open the doors a little bit on the technology. We'll do a proper behind-the-scenes thing on Netflix or Amazon Prime in which we start, we start looking at the engineering and, as well as the drivers. And I think we need to start opening the doors to the garages and the driver's briefings and what goes on in the road cars when they're driving back to the hotel. That's much better than all this sprint race and three DRSs and all the other artificial rubbish they come up with to try and make racing more interesting. We've got an interesting package. Just open the doors on it a little bit. That's all we've got to do. Um, Carl Givers, hi. Clive James was trained by Sterling Moss for a celebrity race in Adelaide. I imagine in the 80s. Were you there then? And can you give us any opinion or anecdote from that race? I've just been watching. I think I was there, but I think... I was so wound. I was so busy with Formula One stuff with Williams that I didn't really take much note of what was going on. I didn't have the time to. That was the problem. I remember chatting to Paul Simon in the garage and asking him what the lyrics of "Sounds of Silence" were all about when he was in concert in Adelaide one year. Uh, but going back to this one, I, I, the only thing I can say is I did spend a memorable. 30 minutes or so with Clive James at the Vegas Grand Prix in 81 at the first corner just chatting to him about uh, Australia because you know, he was Australian obviously and I grew up and we both we went to school quite near one another and we both just sort of um, talked about all those things from the 60s that we loved when we grew when we were growing up I'm, and he was obviously older than I was but some of them overlapped like Violet's uh, Crunchy Bar and uh, which you could only get in Australia and and I actually had Clive's book with me I was, yeah I think I don't know why I did but anyway I've got it inscribed by Clive and it says in memory of violent crunchy bars best wishes Clive or something like that. yeah great guy I love Clive James I really miss him what a guy what an eloquent man and what a lovely man too could sum up what would take me a paragraph to describe he could say in three words Peter Carroll Krauss. I hope Audi uses a Porsche gearbox. wonder why you say that. I think you're going to find, I'm not going to say any more than this, I think you're going to find they are going to have an unbelievable gearbox, but it's going to be an Audi gearbox. It's going to be the best drivetrain in Formula 1 in 26 onwards. Guaranteed. There you go. Um, Big Feathers Farm. Is Lance a silver spoon driver, according to you? Yeah, well, of course he is. With that, if he didn't have the money, he wouldn't be in Formula One. Having said that, I don't think he's half bad. I think he's pretty good. And so he's better than most of the silver spoon drivers you've seen in Formula One's history. And he works quite hard at it, as, as we know from the amount of time he's put in with Rob. You know, he's very self-critical and wants to improve all the time, which is a great thing, you know, for a driver who's... It's, it's tough for him because he knows that everybody knows that he wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the money but he's not slow as we've seen you know front row of the grid periodically and can possibly even win a grand prix and set fastest lap or two 
his dad i mean the problem is his dad probably thinks he's as good as max if he has everything right and he's potential world champion which i don't think well he's not but um he's if i was trying to think of, an, of a good example of so i would say harry shell was probably only in formula one because of his money but he was quick he was quick and and i would say lance is about as good as harry shell um yeah blah, 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 blah. so here we go um you've probably explained this as jacob l but what do you think the future for andretti is well i'd like to think it was working very closely with formula one to generate additional money to have a proper entry in 28 if that's what they think he needs to do but they seem to have washed his hands and made life as difficult as possible for Andretti by saying that his car wouldn't be competitive and Formula One doesn't need Andretti as much as Andretti needs Formula One and, and things like that, which were just ridiculous. And the FIA really need to, to look at what they're doing, I think. And, and I don't see, I mean, if I was Michael, I would say, right, never again. I'll go off and do something else if they don't want to stuff it. That's what I would think, but I may be wrong. Um, ben forty eight ten. Jimmy did that one off drive for Roller Volston in the sixty seven Ray Rex Maze three hundred at Riverside. Well, he did, and furthermore, he was leading the race <laughs> before the engine blew. Now Dan Gurney always thinks that the, he was running illegal fuel, which Jimmy didn't know about. Uh, but even if he was, for Jimmy to jump into that car and put it into the front of the race the way he did, it just shows what a pro he was. And that Volstead Ford had a little beard spoiler on the back, and it was because of that that Jimmy then tried to have one of those made by Alan McCall when he got to New Zealand for the Tasman series in 68, beginning of 68, and put it on the 49. And then Chapman told him to take it off. How dare you put an aero device on the Lotus 49? Dangerous. And then, you know, six months later, they had these things on stalks like that. Um, okay. Michael Lawless. Did you catch... Albon podcast talking about front wing turn-in settings racing on other teams versus Max's Red Bull. He said like turning PC mouse to full high. No, I didn't see that. Um, got a lot of time for, for, for Alex Albon as a racing driver. Um, very, very smooth, very, very supple, very seamless in the way he the transition from straight line to going into the corner but his corners are too long in my opinion ever to be a real threat to Max Verstappen but he uh, he's quick he's definitely quick you've got long corners though longer than Lando's for example um, any more down here super chats it's 11.30 guys come on I'm going to go to bed I've got to get up early take Jack to school tomorrow Andre Gant this is a super chat Peter, it's time for an intervention. Talk me out of boycotting the 24 season due to lack of competitiveness. Okay, Tiger Woods winning by nine shots. Everybody loved it. Nobody complained about the lack of competition. So, Carl Givers. Peter, they brought the Williams Renault simulator car to South Africa, Sandon City in Johannesburg, and I was lucky enough to do a few laps of the Spanish Grand Prix in it. Not very fast. Isn't that funny? Sandon City. I stayed at Sandon City in the last South African Grand Prix. I went to, actually. Santon's Sun Hotel, I think it was called. Would that be right? That's where I first saw that great book, Carrying the Fire. A friend of mine was reading it. 
I said, what's that book? And he said, oh, Michael Collins, the guy that didn't land on the moon on Apollo 11. Fabulous book. You've got to read it. So I started reading bits of it. I thought, oh, this is amazing. I'm going to buy this and did. So, oh, Denny. So here's an interesting one. This is probably me saying, I'll go and find some young guy that nobody's interested in and see what he's doing. This is an answer to the great Kimmy. And, and Denny said, I'm going to write it down. Tuka, W-double-K. Sounds like a Finnish driver to me, but maybe wrong. Tap. Onan. I should know who he is, of course. I'm sure a lot of people out there from the Feeder Formula, which is a great website. I love it. Was it, was it called Feeder Series? I think it's called. Um, it's that guy. So I need to look him up. Tuka Taponen. Thank you, Denny. I will definitely look him up. Um, yeah. So there we go. Anyway, it's been a eight, nine, eleven, three and a half hour marathon. I think I've got to the end. I can't believe it. Trail break. No, no, haven't. We're going to end with this one because I agree with it. Dirk Paws, Formula One needs to reintroduce in-season testing, enable teams like Mercedes and Ferrari to catch up to Red Bull. Well, more than that, I think they need to allow teams to test anywhere they like at whatever time they like. And we should have, I mean, if you can't have a Grand Prix in South Africa, why not allow the teams to go out and test there at least, give everybody a chance to have a look at them running? Why not? more sense to me if being countries where you can't race but you want to race because the money's not big enough India, South Africa places that are important in the world go do some testing there instead um, so there we go I think that was a good point thank you Mark McIntyre I agree about Andretti Formula 1 is sadly wrong especially here in the States very arrogant on their part Haas is totally different thank you Peter always enjoy your thoughts thank you very much um, lots coming in is there any secret system, Samuel? Any he's secret to pass his lack of pace? Yeah, just I think he's just I think he got a shell shock when he saw how the Pirellis. I know he did it in Formula Two, but only one season. The Pirellis are so difficult to drive, and I think that's where if you're a young guy with a lot of skills, still it takes you a year or two to get up to speed. But if Piastri still has the same problem this year, then we know there's something wrong there. Um, okay, there we go. End of this live stream. I'm just getting ready to show my ending video. So thank you very much to Jet Craft, the world's largest buyers and seller, sellers of executive jets, and to Pitbox.io, who will do a lot for your management of the pit wall of telemetry and what you're doing as you go to a special club day or a race day or whatever you happen to be doing competition-wise with your very fast cars. Pitbox is the software for you to use. Brilliant for them. Thanks to, to Pergamo and to Alonso. Alonso the dog. Dexter's getting a bit jealous of Alonso uh, and that wonderful coffee. And thanks to you for all the wonderful comments. Uh, I know we're going to get a lot of feedback on all the scents as well. And, um, you know, life is about so many different things, isn't it? And we can all get a bit miserable about Formula One or this and that, but in reality, there's still, we can just have a big laugh. I think that's what we've seen tonight. Isn't that brilliant? Um, so I'm just, just saying all that. Look, Jose Andres says, do you know Fernando Tonello? He's a Latin American journalist. You two are the most knowledgeable Formula People. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. It was a great live stream. That's very kind. Um, yeah, well, it was very nice. Be well, Mr. PW. Thanks very much. Thanks, Peter Samuel. Thank you, everybody. And you take care. I'll be doing this thing with Scars. I'll put it out as a video on Friday night. And um, then we've got all the race stuff, haven't we, next week? Well, the next live stream probably will be after the Bahrain Grand Prix, I think. Maybe early next weekend. We'll see how it's going.
Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for your kind messages. See you soon.